How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 137 of X Lapsed, where we are back. Yeah, I was going to say we're back on the Dawn of X trail here, but uh, in fact, we're not. Uh, Dawn of X is over and done with. Uh, at least I think so. Uh, we've morphed into something called the Reign of X, which may be the Reign of Ten, but I'm never going to call it that. Uh, we are kicking this off with. Uh, Hell, my favorite book here, uh, Hellions, issue number seven, which had a February 2021 cover date. The story's called Whetstone, written by Zeb Wells, with art by Stephen Segovia. Colors by David Curiel, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller. Head of X's Hickman, edits Basso Amaro, White Sobolski, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale December 2nd of 2020. Now this one here has a pretty striking cover. We've got a sinister, uh, very uh, melodramatically like thrown onto a uh, tombstone for the Hellions here. He, we can tell he is very, very upset. And uh, in fact, when we open the issue, eh, he's, he's pretty upset. Uh, we open with Mr. Sinister, and he is in front of the Quiet Council laying it on really, really thick. Uh, uh, he's really upset about the death of his beloved Hellions, you see. Um this whole thing is so over the top and so wonderful. Now, the rest of the members of the Quiet Council, which still looks like it includes Jean Grey, they know he's full of it, but they allow him to drone on and on and on anyway. And I tell you, I'm loving it because the uh, the council members are just like, oh, listen, would you listen to this guy? And it's like, oh, just let him do it. Let him get it out here. It's so over the top. Now, you'd, you'd almost think that Sinister might calibrate a little bit, uh, because it's, it's got to be clear, even to him, that, you know, this is a bit much. Just a little bit. Now, uh, back to Gene being part of the Quiet Council. I mention that because it's uh, made pretty clear here that this story, this part of the story, is taking place firmly after X of Tens. Because Sinister mentions that Apocalypse went off to buy a house on Arako. Uh, this is being said as if to accuse Apocalypse of being a traitor and maybe even being responsible for setting up the Hellions when they were on their ill-fated sword-swiping mission. It also makes me wonder if this means that Apocalypse is still somewhere on Earth since it seemed like Arako in its entirety was part of that final arrangement with Saturnine. Uh, I suppose we'll have to wait and see on that. Then again, I thought that the trade had Apocalypse and Genesis going to Amenth, not Arako. Maybe I'm just confused. Maybe Zeb Wells and I are both confused. Maybe we're all confused. I mean, we have all these weird little locations here. And, uh, boy, I mean, just to, just to you know, draw a line over under how uh, confusing this is, we actually have to get confirmation here that Nanny, the Orphan Maker, and Wildchild did not die in Otherworld. They died 
maybe in Araco, maybe in Amenf, I don't know. And this was an idea that we had batted around a bit since last issue here because we weren't 100% clear on whether or not uh, those who died over there would be able to be uh, resurrected. And we pop in to uh, call me Kate, who's chatting up Emma, uh, talking about how Professor X and the Five are already at work resurrecting those lost. And uh, as a matter of fact, that's exactly where we're headed to next. Let's hop over to the hatchery, where the three dicey deaths are being discussed. Now, Wild Child and Nanny are both back. Not so much scrambled like Rockslide was, but uh, changed nonetheless. Now, Orphan Maker, he's something altogether different. You see, without his armor, his mutant powers will emerge, which is something that we'll, we will be repeatedly told throughout this issue should never, ever, ever be allowed to happen. So he's still in resurrection limbo, at least for now. Now, at this moment, Nanny and Wildchild hatch, and yeah, uh, well, at least Wildchild looks a bit different. Uh, Nanny kind of just bursts out of the the egg, like her arms and feet come out, or her arms and legs come out. So it looks just like she's Nanny, but she's in a hatchery egg, a gold ball, I guess, rather than in her regular egg-shaped containment unit. From here, we go into an info page, and it basically recaps everything Xavier just explained to the five. Uh, Orphan Maker's mutant power cannot ever be unleashed. And Nanny and Wildchild have been brought back, but they're both a little bit extra. Now he says, and I'm assuming this is Xavier who says this, it's not entirely clear, but I'd have to assume that this is his report. In it, they say, uh, their personalities are intact, but focused. Nanny is more Nanny. Wildchild is more Wildchild. These things read poorly on paper, but are clear in person, believe me. Then, double-page spread of creds and the roll call... On on one double-page spread? Oh my goodness, a reign of X is already making better use of paginal real estate right out the get-go. Let's do our roll call. We got Havoc, the orphan maker, who won't really show up here. Nanny, Wildchild, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, and Mr. Sinister. Then we get a mostly blank quote page from Nightcrawler, so I guess uh, so much for our uh, our good use of paginal real estate. Let's return to comics, and we've got Havoc chatting up Emma Frost. Now, the thing here is, Alex is asking to be removed from the Hellions team. Emma assures him that this is for his own good, and goes on to suggest that something is wrong with his mind, but won't elaborate. She says, your mind, dot, dot, dot. Well, let's not go into that. Huh. I wonder if anyone else's uh, spidey senses uh, started to tingle there. I think we could probably craft a handful of theories over that line alone. Um, Now, Emma says that Alex must remain on the Hellions, not only for his sake, but for everyone's sake. Huh. Again, I wonder. From here, we shift over to Bar Sinister for a briefing on the Hellions' next mission. But first, Empath and Greycrow discuss the fact that Sinister's story about how they all died has, well, a couple of holes in it. Um, Now, Quinan tells them that Sinister's statements are not to be questioned under any circumstances. Then, Wildchild and Nanny enter the scene, and yeah, they're both a bit extra. Nanny is still in her egg-shaped armor, but uh, looks almost a bit scary. Well, I guess scarier than her regular egg-shaped costume here, but it's, uh... It's different. It's different. Now, Wildchild, he looks less feral than before, and certainly more focused. He's standing upright. He's not, he's not as beastial. 
Uh, Sinister busts into the scene and even pulls off the line. A variation on the line. Uh, He says, to me, my Hellions, which I'll allow because it's meant to be silly and sassy, and uh, Sinister's won me over. I'll let him have it. From here, Sinister reintroduces Nanny and Wildchild to the team, and he even turns the floor over to them to say a few words. Neither is feeling all that talkative. And so, Sinister jumps right into the business at hand. Now, we've got our team. We've got Nanny and Wildchild back. Conspicuous by his absence, would-be orphan maker, right? So how do we go about getting him back? Well, that's basically the next mission in a nutshell. Sinister presents his team with a job to procure some nanny tech so she could craft another suit of Orphan Maker armor and hopefully spare the world of uh, being exposed to whatever the hell his mutant power is. Now, we learn that a lot of her tech is on her egg ship, which kind of resembles the Blue Beetle's bug craft, if you're familiar with that. Now, this ship has been repossessed by the mutant hate group, The Right, a name which might cancel out all of my observations about how much more uh, subtle uh, about their political biases comics were back in the long ago. Uh, Sinister turns it over to Nanny to explain, and uh, what she does is recite a creepy nursery rhyme about how dangerous Orphan Maker's powers are. Now, Grey Crow, he still smells a rat, and he asks Sinister if he'll be accompanying them on the mission, to which Sinister goes, nah, you know, been there, done that. At this point, Grey Crow and Empath have really had enough of Sinister's sh- uh, stuff, and it looks as though they're about to make a play. Psylocke then steps in in an attempt to defuse the situation, and by defuse, I mean she jams her psychic blade between Sinister and the Hellions while threatening to use it. She tells the team that they got two choices. They either get on the jet, or they wind up on their backs. And so, jet it is. Now, as the team loads up, Sinister tells Psylocke that she is so pretty when she's being loyal. We also find out a bit more about that package that Sinister's holding for her. And I can't remember who mentioned it in the mailbag. I think a couple of people did, but uh, you guys were right. Um, This isn't entirely about Apoth. It's more about Quanan's daughter. Now, Sinister has Quanon's daughter, well, like a digital version of her anyway, uh, all because the kid used that overclock drug, uh, her mind was downloaded into a path. Then since Quanon gave Sinister a path at the end of Fallen Angels, he was, in theory, able to separate it from the collective. Sinister even offers Quanon the opportunity to speak with her daughter, but she declines. Now, the next thing we know, we're on the Hellion's ship, which is the Sonic Sinister. They're flying over my current stomping grounds, Arizona, which is depicted like a very green and lush place. Even, you know, water all over the place. Uh, must not be anywhere near the valley, because uh, we don't got a whole lot of that here. Now, on board, we meet Sinister's AI pilot, Clive, who repeats how awesome Mr. Essex is over and over again. We see a chat between Grey Crow and Wildchild. The former is very pleased to see that the newly focused version of the latter is uh, who they got after Resurrection. We can see that old Gibney is sitting more like a human, you know, more upright. He's not hunched. Uh, and he's also speaking in complete sentences, so uh, there's that too. Meanwhile, Havoc heads into the cockpit to chat, chat up or actually confront Quanan. He wants to know what her weird loyalty to Sinister is all about. Now, as Alex continues to question her, she puts the Sonic Sinister into Clive mode, which is to say, autopilot. 
while aiming it directly at the Wright's headquarters. She tells Alex to get everyone to the escape pods because, well, there's going to be a crash. And so the Hellions do the thing, and they're able to vacate the ship before it smashes a big ol' hole in the concrete perimeter surrounding the Wright's HQ. Sinister is watching this go down via a monitor, and he cries out for his loyal Clive. So, R.I.P. Clive. We, We knew you so little. Now the dust settles, and the Hellions are faced off against a couple of the Wright's... Robots? I mean, they talk like robots, but I could have sworn the Wright actually had humans in the weird smiley face armors. Uh, the bots confirm that they're dealing with a sub-team of the X-Men and go on the attack. Nanny and Wildchild make ridiculously short work of them. I mean, they are just a, a tour de force here. Uh, the latter, Wildchild, is quite upset that, despite all his slashing and rending, this enemy has no blood. So, yeah, robots. We wrap up the issue with the revelation of who I'm assuming will be this arc's big bad, and it is our old friend, Cameron Hodge. You know, Angel's buddy, who helped them start X-Factor before turning on them and uh, doing all that nasty stuff. Uh, and he's not hes not a gross phalanx-looking thing at the moment. He looks like just a regular dude. Um, only upon close-up to his face here, we can see some odd, like, glowy lines on the bottom right side of his face, which... I can't remember what the post-humans look like, but uh, maybe this is a sign of post-humanity? I mean, that was kind of a big deal when we started this thing, right? Anyway, I suppose that'll all remain to be seen for now, because we are out of here. Next episode, we are looking at X-Factor, number five. So, what did we all think of this issue of Hellions here? It's probably not the strongest issue, but it was still a really good time here. Um... Let's work our way through it here. There were a few takeaways that I wanted to touch on. Um, Sassy Sinister steals the show here, right? Uh, I mean, even right at the right out the gate here, his performance before the Quiet Council was fan friggin tastic. I mean, it's totally obvious that he's full of it, but the Council like just allows him to do it. Uh, maybe they're giving him enough rope with which to hang himself, or. Maybe they find him as amusing as I do. Um, Whatever the case here, uh, (laughs) really, really well done. It was just so over the top, so silly. Um, It really shouldn't work, but damned if it doesn't. Um, His his entire issue was great here. Uh, Holding the meeting with the team, uh, crying for poor Clive (laughs) after he's crashed into the concrete perimeter. I mean... Sinister is just, he's killing it here. Really, really well done. Um, More on that meeting with the Hellions here. Uh, He he turns the floor over to the very untalkative wild child and nanny who is just, God only knows what she is right now. And it's just uh, one of those signs here, and we've talked about this with Hellions before, uh, just the the comic timing, the comedic timing here. uh, It actually feels like almost cinematic. Like you can see... You could see the scene actually playing out before you. It's just really, really well done. Um, And I love that his silliness here is almost immediately juxtaposed with the more sinister revelation that he's got Quanan under his thumb because he's he was able to, or he claims he was able to finagle her daughter's binary code from the Apoth download. So we still see that uh, this guy isn't just a clown, right? Uh, he He's projecting as a clown, but he is a dangerous individual who has methods to get people to uh, perform for him. And uh, 
just have I said well done enough? <laughs> it's Zeb well done. Oh, that that's awful. I apologize. Um, Orphan Maker, his powers. Uh, I don't know what his powers are, but the fact that we're hearing that they're just so. Um, I don't know if they're unpredictable. I don't know if they're inconvenient. I don't know if they're they're truly like world-endingly dangerous. But it's like, shouldn't the X Men have tried to deal with this for all the years that uh, Young Peter was a villain? Like, if he had the power, I mean, let's go all the way out here and assume that he is the mutant equivalent of a world-ending nuclear bomb. Right, that's as that's like as far as we can go. A, a, a galaxy-rending bomb is this guy. Wouldn't the X Men have dealt with that? Like, wouldn't the X Men have wanted to uh, maybe take him off the board while he was a uh, ranting and raving villain who uh, was, you know, concerned with suckling off Nanny and stuff? I mean, seems like kind of a wild card with such an immense power to just let run free. I wonder if maybe his powers are more inconvenient. Uh, maybe something that he can do would, I don't know, maybe we'd find, maybe it would spread the word about Mora being, you know, in the no place, right? Or maybe it would just do something that would undermine what uh, the Quiet Council are trying to do with Krakoa. They don't say, which is great, which is great that they don't say it. All they say is that. He's got this power that mustn't ever happen, mustn't, mustn't ever manifest, mustn't ever be revealed. So, I mean, we can theorize so many different things here. We can theorize that it is the bomb, or we can theorize that it's just a gotcha for the Quiet Council, and it's something that Xavier is a bridge that Xavier doesn't want to cross. I'm going to be interested if, uh, if we are even going to bother bringing him back in the first place here. This mission is about getting the nanny tech so she can craft some new armor so the body can be immediately put in this armor, I'm guessing. But maybe it's not worth the trouble. I guess we'll find out as we go here. Now, speaking of theories, Havoc has a discussion with Emma Frost, right? Feels like a very strange conversation. I don't know that we've seen these two on the same panel together for quite some time, but... Emma knows something, and uh, we don't, right? We've seen Havoc acting erratically uh, since Hellions number one, where he, you know, he almost killed uh, a human, right? He almost killed a few humans. He had to be stopped before he did, and he did that whole thing where he like kind of just looked at his hands, like, "Oh man, what did I almost do?" I don't know if this means he's under some sort of influence. I don't know if this means that he's just losing his marbles. Emma mentions something about his mind, but then just doesn't doesn't elaborate on it. Could Havoc himself be something of an inconvenience to the Quiet Council? I, I wonder. I wonder how much of this really is for his own good, because Emma says it's for his own good and everyone else's. So maybe this is a case of the needs of the many versus the needs of the one. I I really don't know. Uh, it feels like they've been kind of. Tamping down on Alex here Just keeping him out of the spotlight Despite the fact that I mean, if we go back to the beginning of X of Tens here He's the one who accepted Saturnine's uh, threat Or Saturnine's challenge It was him and Polaris there And she's like, hey, you guys are challenged to this This festival of swords And it was Havoc that said, okay <laughs> You know, we'll do it 
I don't know if that even means anything uh, or if anybody was even paying attention to who said, yeah, let's do it. And at the end of the day, it might not even matter. It just feels kind of weird that they're kind of holding Havoc back, but he was uh, in a leadership role in the big crossover. Don't know. Now let's talk about the right for a minute. I will concede that it's been forever since I read the old X-Factor stuff. You know, back when the right were introduced, so I really can't speak to that. Or how they were able to repossess Nanny's eggship. Uh, was Nanny tied up with the right? Was she, like... Was she, I don't know, part of their organization at some point? I mean, it almost sounds right. I can almost remember it. But I can't recall enough to say with any certainty that this was the case... Looking at it now, though, wouldn't it be a little bit weird considering that Nanny is a mutant working for a anti-mutant hate group? I don't know. Just seems weird. Cameron Hodge. Cameron Hodge. Let's talk Cameron Hodge. I've long talked about how special X-Factor number one was to me growing up. Uh, it was the book that I found at a, at a mall convention. I found it for it was like $5, and I thought I was just the luckiest boy in the entire world to have... And X-Men number one from the 80s, you know, X-Factor number one. And that issue featured the first appearance of Cameron Hodge. Uh, And so I subconsciously always uh, considered him to be a much more important character than he ever actually was. Uh, He's popped up a time or two, right? We've seen him in a few different iterations. Uh, He was part of the Extinction Agenda, the Phalanx Covenant. We see him. He pops up from time to time. But since I owned his first appearance, uh, and this is before, you know, Phalanx and stuff, but uh, I always viewed him as being much more important and integral to the X-Men lore than he actually was here. So on a personal level, it tickles me to see Cameron Hodge here in present day, and I I do look forward to seeing more of him here. I, I think he's a great, slimy villain and almost a perfect fit for this Hellions book, considering... I mean, we just dealt with the Marauders and the Goblin Queen. Cameron Hodge is, you know, someone whose name could be said in the same breath as uh, as those characters, at least to me. So, uh, and Hellions is, I mean, as uh, non-traditional as it is, it's probably the most traditional X-book that we've got going at the moment here. Um, between this and Marauders, it's, it's a neck-and-neck race here. This feels like it could be something out of the 80s, you know, just in the nuts and bolts of it. So... I think Cameron Hodge is a good fit here, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, just what happens here. I'm looking forward to everything about this. I'm looking forward to see if we can if we get any answers on Orphan Maker. I'm wanting to see what uh, the new nanny and wild child are all about. I want to see what, uh, I mean, God help me, I'm, I'm interested in Quinan's daughter and the Apoth stuff, and I didn't think that was going to happen at any time. Um, also, i got to say, the art, wonderful. Wonderful art here. Uh, the emotions on, I mean, not to go back to Sinister again, because I've talked about that a lot, but the emotions on his face here, um, so great. So great. And it's and it's just so over the top. It's so exaggerated, but it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Uh, Steven Segovia just uh, murders it here. Just wonderful, wonderful work. Uh, definitely, and I say this every time we're talking about Hellions, if, uh, if you ain't buying Hellions... Well, you should be buying Hellions because it is a fantastic book. But that's all I got to say about the issue. Let's hop into the mailbag here. Now we're going to start with Damien who's talking about X of Swords Destruction number one. 
He says, unlike you, I'm a little sad to be coming to the end of X of Tens again. It really did make me excited to read the X books again. And you know, it's funny, since I didn't read this along with everybody, you know, when it was coming out on the, on the shelves every week, and I don't know that I'll ever be in that sort of position to do so since I get my books, you know, um, after the fact. I don't get, I don't go to the shop every week. I, I get my one monthly shipment. So I'm always going to be a certain amount behind. So I won't be on top of the, the conversation as it happens here. But what you said made a lot of sense. And it reminded me of just how much fun it could be to follow one of these big events. Because uh, I feel like maybe I didn't experience it the way I should have in that, I mean, when I started, it was done. You know, it was already done. Everybody, I got to figure everybody was A, already through it, and B, already done with it. Because it was a long one. But what you said here reminded me of just how much fun it was to beyond the, the beyond the cutting edge of an of an x-men uh, or I guess any comic book uh, event um, I'm thinking back to things like uh, Messiah complex second coming um, and just how much fun those were to follow week to week to week because it was just it was just a lot of fun you know there was momentum there where this dawn of X run that we had all what was it a hundred hundred or so issues of dawn of X, a lot of times it just didn't feel like it was going anywhere. But when we have a 22-part story, there's at least the impression that things are moving forward. And I'm even thinking back to like crossovers that I felt were lackluster, like uh, Battle of the Atom, that Bendis thing. And uh, the, uh, what was it, the Blood of Apocalypse or whatever, the, uh, the one that went through all new X-Men, extraordinary X-Men, and that weird... Uncanny X-Men And how I didn't care for those stories Very much at all But I had fun reading them I've had fun going through them As they were coming out I felt like I was, you know I felt like I was on the ground floor of the story And I was able to actually experience it play out The way I was supposed to And I, I, I mean I also wasn't spending several hours Every day uh, analyzing them But uh, I totally get the uh, I totally get and appreciate the idea that I mean this did make it exciting to read the books again. This made it like appointment reading, right? Um, now Damien continues. Much of this issue is simply a great big fight scene. Laraz and Gracia shone throughout, making it look epic, but it did mean that a lot of characterization was pushed to one side. It was really only Apocalypse and Saturnine who got any character development. I find myself mainly focused on the epilogue and what it suggests for the Reign of X. I'm sure that we're meant to take that as Reign of Ten. I'm sure we're supposed to take it as Reign of Ten, too. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say that. Uh, losing two members of the Quiet Council really tips the balance toward the bad guys when it comes to the votes. And that's what I thought, too. Because, I mean, Apocalypse was basically a good guy at this point. He was working in his own interests, but he was also working in the interests of the, the wider you know, Krakoa uh, collective, the, the wider nation of Krakoa here. He didn't want, he wasn't pulling strings behind the scenes like Sinister, um, didn't have his own interests like Sebastian Shaw. Uh, Mystique, I mean, she's she's a, uh, she's a time bomb, right? Just waiting to explode here. She's a loose cannon. So I expected it to be a bit, a bit different. Um, but 
Here in Hellions, we see that Gene's still part of it. I don't know if that's... Maybe it's an error. Uh, it could be a continuity error. And honestly, I'm not really sure how I feel about it either way. I don't know if I need Gene to be or not to be a member of the Quiet Council. Uh, I guess that'll all remain with uh, what happens in the uh, upcoming issues of X-Men when we actually get a team of X-Men in a book called X-Men, which I'm actually looking forward to. Um, Damien continues. Of course, we also have the return of the X-Men, independently of the Quiet Council. This gives us so many opportunities for future stories. Hopefully, this will refocus the X-Men book and give us some great stories. And yes... My thoughts exactly. I really hope that there is a newly focused um, X-Men book here. Just give us some team stuff. Give us some superheroics. Give us something that feels more like an X-Men book than uh, whatever the X-Men book is right now. Not. I don't want it to be an issue of X-Men Unlimited anymore. Just give me a good old uncanny X-Men sort of stories here. Uh, Damien continues, It also sounds like Storm is going to leave Krakoa. I just hope it's for a solo book and not to rejoin the Black Panther cast. Now, that I didn't get. I didn't notice that here. Maybe you know more than I do, um, reading ahead into uh, Marauders. But uh, I didn't get that. Uh, Then again, I was probably quite exhausted when I got to the epilogue portion of the issue, so I might have glossed over something. Uh, Damien continues. I hope that the launch of S.W.O.R.D. as a new book will put all the space stuff into one place and make the other X-Books more focused on Earth. Of course, Hickman isn't writing S.W.O.R.D., and I suspect he can't resist sci-fi. I hope so. I hope you're right. I hope that all the space stuff can be in that one book, so it's not every single issue that we're reading here. It's it's funny. Um, I, I was on a show not too long ago talking about... Uh, Concepts in comics that I don't care for so much And uh, when I'm talking about Marvel Comics The things that I don't like about Marvel Comics Are usually, usually comes down to S.H.I.E.L.D. And the Inhumans, right? I think they're both beyond dull Beyond played out Way overexposed as being very two-dimensional Not having much to say And it feels like, you know, every so often They'll try to launch a book with them And then I would think to myself, oh great <laughs> All the S.H.I.E.L.D. crap will be in the S.H.I.E.L.D. book. But then we get the stark reminder that nobody cares about S.H.I.E.L.D. And the book gets cancelled, and then S.H.I.E.L.D.'s back to being in every book. Same with the Inhumans. They, they did that ridiculous launch during one of the Marvel Nows, uh, like 2013-2014, where we had Inhumans, all new Inhumans, Inhumanity, uh, uncanny Inhumans. And nobody cared, <laughs> because the Inhumans suck. And so instead of just having them all in the in their little fiefdom over there, they decide, okay, well, no, nah, this didn't work, so let's 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 just spread them out in all the books again. This is like a reverse version of that here. We've got all this space crap, <laughs> and it's like, hey, here's a sword book. Maybe that's where they'll stick all the space crap. But uh, I I'm not gonna hold my breath because as you say here, Hick- Hickman just can't resist. He can't help himself. We're gonna have. We're going to have space crap. I'm sure of it. Uh, Damien continues. And apparently we have millions of mutants added to the cast from Morocco. Hopefully we're going to see lots more of Iska the Unbeaten, since she is the head of the Arakasinian (laughs) version of the Quiet Council. I just hope that we don't have to turn every story into the X-Men versus hundreds of faceless Arachoids. Yeah, me too. 
Me too. And I, I forgot about the 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 fact that Arako. I, I mean, despite reading the same story twice, I forgot that they had their own sort of quiet council, and that uh, Iska would be you know, clearly a part of it. I hope you're right, though. I hope that uh, we don't that these books don't turn into. X-Men versus Iraqi oh, Iraqians. <laughs> I don't want to see that every time out. And I also hope that the Iraqo contingent doesn't get their own book, because who would want to read that? <laughs> and what's more, who would want to spend hours and hours analyzing it? Not me. Uh, certainly not me. It reminds me of... Uh, when they launched the new 52 and they gave us the list of all 52 books that were coming out. And I was going down like the Green Lantern list. And it's like, okay, we have Green Lantern, Green Lantern Corps, Green Lantern like Emerald Warriors or, or the New Guardians, Green Lantern, the New Guardians, and then Red Lanterns. And it's like, who would want to read Red Lanterns? Uh, if the, the Araco book would be the Red Lanterns of the X-Men line here. I hope that never comes to pass. Damien continues. Overall, I would have to say that I enjoyed X of Tens. It was the first time since Hoxpox that I needed to read the X books on release day. It got me excited about the X Men again. As a story, it was a little disjointed and was oddly paced. On reflection, it reminds me of the Cross Time Caper from the original Excalibur run. The Cross Time Caper was also a bit of a mishmash, but it contained some real gems. And this really was an Excalibur story. I think that's a really good comparison A really good comparison It's funny, um, back before I was you know, talking about comics And writing about comics all the time I'd sometimes get like a wild hair to reread Or revisit the Cross Time Caper And I always remember it fondly And then I read it <laughs> And a mismatch is a really good way of putting it Because uh there are some diamonds in the rough, but there's a lot of rough to get through, too. Uh, it's a toughie, and uh, I think that's a really good comparison for Exitens here, because there were some diamonds in uh, in the rough here with Exitens. Those The Hellion stories were fantastic, the, the Marauders two-parter with the, uh, the dinner party, even the Marauders solo storm issue. Solid stuff, solid stuff. Uh, X-Men 15 with Cyclops, you know, putting together the team again. As weird as that was, solid enough, right? But there was a lot of rough, too. <laughs> I mean, we had we had that two-parter with Wolverine and Hell. For what reason? I, I don't know, because we needed to fill 22 <laughs> issues. Uh, but, uh, you know, your, your point is very well taken here, and the comparison is, is spot on. And you're totally right here. This was 100% an Excalibur story that just somehow usurped the entire Dawn of X line for... Reasons that are lost to me. I, I don't know. I don't know why this was the story. This was the one that they said, "Okay, well, that's the ticket. This is the one that's going to. Uh, this is the one that's going to take us into the next phase of this story." I. I don't know. I, yeah, we got to remain cautiously optimistic. I suppose we've uh, we've only read one Reign of X book so far, and uh, and we liked it. So uh, everything is moving in the right direction. Uh, Damien continues. Of course, since Exitens ended, I've dropped most of the X-Books again, but I'm buying more than I was before, which is probably exactly what Marvel would want from me. I'm now getting Hellions and X-Factor as well as Marauders, so I've actually tripled my X-Books. So I'm sure it's been a success from their point of view. Hey, I mean, what more can you ask for, right? Um, 
And you just now reminded me how much I loved that issue of X-Factor, which was... Feels like it was a hundred years ago, X Factor number four, where uh, where Lorna goes through the prophecies and sets up the uh, the action figure display playset, and we find out that about the resurrection protocols being wonky. Excellent issue, excellent issue. And um, if I were a better, more balanced human being, <laughs> and not a uh, completionist. I think those are the three books that I'd probably be sticking with right now. X Factor is on the bubble. But Hellions and Marauders are are surefire uh, pull list books for sure. And uh, hey, if if Marvel is has gotten you to triple your order, that's a that's a success. That's a success. Damien wraps up with anyway until Doug beats Iska in an arm wrestling match. Make my next lapsed. To which I'd say, don't give them ideas. Because <laughs> after some of the stuff we saw, you know, killing a kitten and humping a rock, <laughs> and we saw an arm wrestling match too. Uh, I could see that being revisited somewhere down the line I guess uh, we'll have to wait and see But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts I was really looking forward to hearing what you thought of uh, of the finale to Exit Tens here And I'm so happy to have heard your thoughts and been able to share them with everyone else here So thank you uh, Next, Evan, he is not quite to Exosword's destruction yet He is talking about Excalibur number 15 he says, so, I kicked off Excalibur 15 by going to X-Men 15 and confirming that, in fact, no, there was no full-scale war going on at the end, just Genesis putting on the Annihilation Mask. I don't mean to keep picking on the Wolverine Gets a Sword in Hell two-parter, it might be somebody's favorite, but if we needed some extra pages, I have an idea where they could have been trimmed. Yes, yes, that's... (laughs) And I mean, we joke about this a lot on the show... That it's basically a trope now It's a meme Anytime we cover an issue of Excalibur We have to ask Hey, did I miss an issue? Because, boy Even though this is a relatively Comparatively tightly told story here 22-part story In order, right? It's there, there, are no, there is no nebulous bits here Because they are all sequential You'd figure that it would be a little bit smoother In the transition But you're right X-Men number 15, the mask goes on. X-Men, uh, Excalibur 15, demons everywhere. I mean, where did that come from? Of course, we can connect dots, but we shouldn't have to, right? Uh, heaven continues. After that speed bump, I have to say I enjoyed most of the issue. But I'm with you on the out-of-nowhere reintroduction of the Betsy Britton Corps. Betsy hasn't been part of the story since part, I'm not going to look it up, much to the dismay of her bereaved, beautiful, blonde British brother Brian and nobody else. And now we learn that this conflict millennia in the making was part of Saturnine's plan to get Brian back in the Captain Britain saddle after, in Marvel time, what, a few weeks? I feel like the story makes more sense to the writers and maybe I'm just slow putting the pieces together. Well, brother, if you're slow, so am I. (laughs) The, uh, The fact that and I'm pretty sure I made the the futures and the DC New Fifty Two futures end comparison where we told this huge sprawling story just to get a new Batman Beyond. It feels kind of like that. Um, and you're right here. Something I didn't even consider is the fact that Brian hasn't been out of the togs that long. You know, sliding time scale or not, it might have been just a couple weeks. And Saturnine just uh, it all went to her head right now, and she had to she had to fix this. She had to right this wrong. And I think you're you're right on the money here that uh, this probably makes a ton more sense to the writers 
Um, unfortunately, we're left using our own headcanon to fill in blanks, which really isn't uh, really isn't the best way to, to deliver your story. At least in my opinion, I could be mistaken. Uh, Evan wraps up with, Gonna read Destruction soon, and I'm just gonna call it right here. Rejected by Genesis and Brian Avalon, singer of the hit single Megan, Don't Kiss That Elf, Apocalypse and Saturnine elope in a ceremony officiated by Mad Jeb Jaspers and buy a timeshare on Emma Frost's island with Cypher and Bay. That would have been an ending worth reading for, I tell ya. <laughs> I mean, the story was heavy with whimsy, but uh, it didn't exactly end whimsically. It, uh... Most of the genies go back in the bottle and uh, we just move on to the next thing. But I, I like your ending a little bit better. Um, I mean, we do have Apocalypse buying a timeshare on Araco or a Menth, right? So uh, that's a thing. But uh, I want to thank you so much for sharing your uh, thoughts on Excalibur 15. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the big finale in Destruction. Really looking forward to that. But uh, that'll do it for the mailbag today. If you would like to be part of the mailbag, hey... You can find me easily on these internets. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can hear all the Chris and Reggie noise that you'd want to hear over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that's going to do it for today. Uh, we are back on the uh, on track here. We're on the Reign of X highway? Freeway? I don't know. We're, we're, we're on the Reign of X right now. That's what we're doing. And uh, I'm happy to finally be back. And I was uh, very, very happy to get the opportunity to share another issue of Hellions with everybody. So I want to thank you all so, so much for joining me on the Reign of X highway or whatever this is. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 138 of X-Lapsed, where 
I'm dealing with some allergies here, uh, so I'm hoping that I don't sound too stuffy or too snorty, and I hope I don't make any disgusting noises that uh, hinder your enjoyment or not gagging through the uh, the program today. Uh, it's it's really bad this time of year. I apologize if uh, if that's apparent. I'm gonna hope that it's not, but uh, figure I might as well address it before I just start going into it. Now today, we are still in the reign of X, of course. This is our second issue into the new direction, or the, I don't know if we call it a new direction, but the next evolution of the Hickman uh, run, I suppose. And today we're talking about X-Factor, Volume 4, Number 5, which had a February 2021 cover date, and I can't believe it, it's an issue of X-Factor, current year X-Factor, and I'm actually kind of excited to, uh, to check it out. Huh, how about that? Then, of course, we see the title of the story, which uh, fills me with cringe. Uh, the story is called Sweet Number 5, First Movement Finale, After a Summer of Allostatic Overload. Really? Okay. Uh, written by Leia Williams, with art by David Baldion. Colors, Israel Silva. Letters, VCs Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White-Sabolsky. Cover price, $3.99. And this one went on sale December 2nd. Of 2020. Now we pick up right near where we left off two issues ago, because this book was swept into the X of Tens event just like everything else. And here we see X Factor delivering proof of death for the Academy X era new mutant, Wind Dancer. Now, if you recall, she was the whole reason that we spent what felt like 15 issues in Mojo World. Uh, and so uh, we Go into the story here. We're on the set of Adam X's Hot Seat, a popular streaming program on Mojo World's Headshot TV. And I, uh, I wonder how this will affect what's going to be revealed about him in the new X-Men Legends series. Huh, I, I haven't read it yet. It hasn't been delivered to my house yet, so I, uh, I don't know anything about it just yet. I've been avoiding spoilers, even though it's uh, pretty apparent what's going to be revealed there. Uh, anyway, Adam is offering Windancer the opportunity to... Uh, well, get out of there without dying. Now, you see, the fans of Headshot TV had voted for Sophia to be shot to death live on the air. But with some magic editing, Adam can make it look as though she was without actually going through with it. Sophia is steadfast that she actually does want to go through with it. And so she does. Bada bing, bada boom, shot in the head, she is dead. North Star presents this footage to the five, and they agree that, uh, yep, Windancer is dead. Now, we find out that all the non-Lorna members of X-Factor were not yet privy to all the goings down during the Festival of Swords, so they were unaware that the resurrection protocols had been suspended, nor did they know that Rockslide came back all scrambled. Now, Hope suggests that X-Factor might be of assistance when it comes to determining whether or not it's safe to begin resurrecting again. From here, we get our roll call and cred spread. Remember, this is Reign of X, so we don't need three pages for this anymore. We just need two. So our roll call is Egg, Elixir, Hope, Tempest, Proteus, Northstar, Prodigy, Prestige, Eyeboy, Polaris, Dakin, Dakin, Aurora with the Roll Eyes, and Rockslide. Back to comics and over to the hatchery. It's the next day, and we pop in on a chat between Elixir and Prodigy who themselves are Academy X-era mutants. And they were uh, Sophia's teammates back in the long ago. 
Which made me stop to think um, I can't believe that these characters have already been in these books for about 20 years now Just just shy of it Where the hell did my life go? Jeez uh, From here we jump over to the rest of X-Factor Now Rachel attempts to use her chrono-skimming powers on Rockslide Which is to say she's digging around in his memories to find out a bit more about him And hopefully attempt to un- undo some of the problematic resurrection scrambling And so, that's what she does only it's not too long a trip. You see, Rockslide's entire story starts with his very recent resurrection. Now, the whiplash from the revelation causes Rachel to be sent flying and slamming into a wall. It's like she was in position and stopped short and just went flying. Rachel concludes that the fella is basically a newborn. To which iBoy rushes in to hug him and wish him a happy birthday, which makes me want to poke out each and every eye on his body. Now, we'll talk a bit about this wonky rock slide in a bit, but this sort of kind of contradicts the original Otherworld Resurrection theory and uh, what, what Professor X had said uh, back in X-Factor number 4, uh, part 2 of X of Tens. But we'll talk about that later. Now, as we're ready to have Sophia pop out of her egg, we see Proteus and Hope looking down into another area of the hatchery. There's a woman there, and we'll find out who in just a moment, but she's been lingering, but will not attend this unhatching. And so they decide to begin without her. Bada-bing, Sophia pops out of her egg and immediately sets to soaring through the skies. And we're told that this is how many of the formerly flying mutants celebrate their rebirths. By flying, taken to the skies. This was seen when uh, Icarus and, uh, what's-her-face, Arrow came back, the uh, Guthrie kids. And we actually saw Arrow's rebirthening after the events of the Crucible in X-Men number 7, which feels like something we read like a hundred years ago. But uh, we're actually going to talk a bit more about the Crucible today, so uh, hold that thought. Now, we find out that Sophia had been depowered before she died, so this is kind of a double rebirth for her. And heck, uh, may just be the reason she agreed to have her brains blown out for the entertainment of the Mojo World masses. Huh. Hmm. We'll talk about that in a bit. Now, we see that Sophia's return was witnessed by a whole bunch of Academy X-era kids, many of whom I could have sworn have died maybe twice. Uh, Though, I mean, (laughs) look at what we're reading. That's not a big deal anymore. We see Hellion. Surge, Pixie, Indra, Mercury, Loa, Tag, Dust, Icarus, Anol, and uh, a blonde girl. I don't know who she is, though. Maybe Wallflower? I don't know. Anyway, Sophia chats up her pals, and we learn some stuff. You see, she found out about the Crucible while in Mojo World. Which, I didn't know that was something that anyone who didn't live in Kurokoa would would know. Uh, Seems like something the mutants wouldn't want uh, getting out, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, it's barbaric, and it's basically assisted ritual suicide. So uh, I figure there's probably got to be a hashtag against that sort of thing out there, right? You don't think Krakoa wants people knowing, but Sophia knew. Now, she also informs her pals that Adam X, Spiral, and Shatterstar all tried to help her leave Mojo World, but for whatever reason, well, for a reason we can theorize about, uh, she didn't leave. I think what we're left to assume here is that Sophia wanted to die as a means of getting her powers back upon resurrection. Now, she even goes as far as to suggest that any and all of her repowered pals did the very same. 
and she asks Prodigy if he went through the Crucible to get his powers back, but he says he did not. And more on that in just a little bit. But first, you remember uh, that woman who refused to attend from a few minutes ago? Well, that was Emma Frost. And here, she's being chatted up by Danny Moonstar. Now, you see, Emma is still down in the dumps over the death and botched resurrection of Rockslide. Now, one of Emma's gimmicks is guilt over the loss of her students, and this goes all the way back to when uh, Trevor Fitzroy wiped out her original Hellions way back in Uncanny 281, back in uh, 1991. Now, Danny talks her up a bit and tells her that she only feels so bad because she's a caring person. And, well, that's good enough for Emma, at least for now. And the two head off to the Green Lagoon, which I nearly called the Regal Beagle, for some drinks. And uh, this makes me wonder if the X-Men are ever going to like demand any sort of reparations from Saturnine over the death of Rockslide here, because they wouldn't have been there without Saturnine's, uh, you know, the stuff she was doing. From here, we shift over to Polaris and Dak and Dakin having a somewhat playful chat. Now, this chat is observed by old Roll-Eyes herself, Aurora. And it seems she doesn't like what she sees, and so she whooshes away. Which makes me think that, you know, high school's pretty heavy, isn't it? Yeah. From here, an info page, and it's a schematic on the Boneyard. And it's a real throwback to those extra pages Marvel would toss into their annuals every now and again to give us, like, a cross-section look into, like, the Baxter Building or the Four Freedoms Plaza or Avengers Mansion or the X-Mansion. A lot of fun stuff. I really uh, I really dig this kind of info page. If we're going to get info pages, this is the kind we should get. So let's have a look here. Now, this place is topped by a flying deck. Then we've got Northstar and Northstar's husband's penthouse, um, to which, I mean, Northstar's, Northstar's husband isn't a mutant, right? Hmm, so how come Xavier wouldn't let his own stepbrother come to Krakoa? That seems like a jerk move, doesn't it? Hmm. Then Polaris, Prodigy, and iBoy, they have permanent uh, residencies there. Below that, we have guest quarters. But now they're acting as Dakin, Dakin, and Aurora's rooms. Uh, it's pretty interesting. They're not full-fledged uh, members, it seems. Then we have a leisure area, including a living room and kitchen, a hanging gardens, uh, the mid-level is purely for X-Factor activity, so we got a meeting room, a lab, some offices and servers. Then a theater, okay. Uh, then at the bottom we have a reception area. Uh, Rachel and Amazing Baby evidently live in the basement. And uh, then below that, there are some caves in the down below. Then we turn the page and get to see a montage of all the stuff that's currently going down in the boneyard. And it's pretty effective here. We see, like, the whole place with just little... Little, uh, not, not so much a cross-section, but like panels that are taking place in certain areas. Because it's like a full page of the Boneyard, but with panels strategically placed to show what's happening in each section. It's, when paired with that info page, it's uh, very, very effective and very well done. Now, one thing we learn among the, uh, the hubbub here is that uh, Gorgon, our friend Gorgon, who passed not too long ago, he's already been resurrected. And, since it was an Otherworld resurrection, he's acting strangely. And uh, I wonder where that'll be followed up on. Probably probably in the pages of Wolverine, I'd imagine. But I've been wrong before. We then sit in on a chat between the Five and North Star, where they share some more of the recent goings-on. The Hellions, as we saw, were all resurrected. And those who had died in a month, they were brought back sharpened, as though they were wedded blades. Which adds a little bit of context as to why last episode's issue of Hellions was titled Whetstone. 
Huh, I didn't think of that. Interestingly, North Star suggests that this revelation maybe not be shared too widely and freely, and maybe maybe not even with the Quiet Council. This I like. Because now, if they do know, the Council knows that mutants who die in a month will come back sharper. Well, that might be something they try to exploit. And heck, on that very same thought, if any mutants knew that if they died in a month that they came back sharper, well we could run into some pretty dicey situations. And I'm really glad that North Star raised this concern, and I'm also glad that it wasn't relegated to just fodder on an info page. This is actually some good stuff here. I like it a lot. Now, as we tour the rest of the facility, we see a bunch of the young mutants being young mutants and having a good time. Uh, We even get a cameo from the mutant kid DJ, who has music-based powers. I don't think we've seen him in a hundred years. Uh, also, Prodigy and Windancer talk a little bit more about the Crucible. Now, Windancer still assumes that Prodigy went through the thing in order to get his powers back, but uh, Prodigy stands firm here. He did not. Uh, he actually thinks he was murdered. So, uh, not, not much more is said on that, but I'm guessing this uh, will probably be followed up on before long. Later, we follow Aurora into Dakin Dakin's quarters, where he is uh, <clears throat> working on his etchings. Which sounds like I'm being sarcastic and making fun of him for being rather precious, but that's actually what he's doing. He's working on his etchings. Uh, He tells her that he wasn't flirting with Polaris earlier, which briefly makes Aurora stop rolling her eyes. And uh, it seems like we're inching ever closer to these two knocking boots, if in fact they don't do it, while we read this info page. Now, this, e- this info page is a weird anonymous letter, an email, to X-Factor, and it's long, doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense... And I'm guessing whichever subplot this leads to will be fleshed out soon enough. But, I mean, this is a book that... This is a book that can use info pages this way. Because their whole thing, you know, we had those little bubbles in the sky that are, that are new cases for X-Factor here. We could dedicate an info page to that information. And that, I'm okay with that here. This is a more effective use of a kind of tired gimmick in the info pages. Back to comics, and we join Aurora and Northstar atop the Boneyard. Now, it's been a long time since I've read Alpha Flight, um, but I, I'm guessing that it used to be that the Bobiers uh, had to touch in order for their powers to activate. That had been changed by Sasquatch. It's been changed back. It's been changed forth. It's been changed back. And it looks like right now it's been changed back post-Aurora's uh, resurrection. And so, they take each other by the hand, and they produce a beautiful Northern Lights show. Rockslide sees this and actually comments that it is, in fact, beautiful. Which, I want to say, is probably the first thing he's managed to say that wasn't just repeating something he was told since he came back all scrambled. Then, off in the distance, Aurora and Northstar hear a scream. And so they rush over to see what's going on, and they find the body of Siren, who looks like she fell to her death despite having the ability to fly. Uh Uh-oh. Well, that's where we leave it for this issue of X-Factor. Next episode! Oh boy, get your Twitter blockchains updated and ready, because it's time for S.W.O.R.D. But how about we talk about this issue? I really liked it. I really liked this issue, mostly because it felt more character-focused and less like, hey, young people, watch these young people do young people things while talking like young people. You know? (laughs) It wasn't like that so much. 
Sure, I mean, there were instances of that, but it was more focused on characters and building, uh, really laying foundation. I don't want to say world building since this is part of a shared world here, but they are building for this series and they're making the, they're giving this series a reason to exist and and it's it's coming around. It's coming around. Um, it's a great like, you know, back to your regularly scheduled programming sort of issue. You know, we get to check in on the status quo. We get some downtime, which is always fun with the X-Men. We get to see characters interact. We got to see the Academy X kids all kind of have their little high school reunion sort of situation. And we also seeded a whole bunch of potential subplots for upcoming storylines. All in all, in a way, this is a real throwback to the way comics used to be and ought to be told, right? Um, I'm pleased with it. I'm pleased with it. Let's talk about a few takeaways here. Um, Rockslide being a newborn. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the, the, the scrambled resurrections yet. We just have theories that we've been told by the professor, and maybe the five have chimed in. But when Rockslide was brought back, it was theorized on panel that the Otherworld resurrections would be basically a scrambled amalgamation of a bunch of alternate versions of said character. Now, since Otherworld is sort of like a nexus point of realities, it stands to reason that that might be the case. Here, though, it's not that at all. It's it's as though he is not any other version. He's just a brand spanking new, you know, tabula rasa blank slate version of himself. And uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um... And it really makes me curious how they're going to handle Gorgon's return, since they said that he's acting weird, but they don't say he's acting just like Rockslide is. So maybe um, the Otherworld deaths are more just unpredictable than anything, and uh, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that, so long as we, we get some explanations here. Um, now let's talk about one of my favorite subjects since we started this, the Crucible. First, how did Sophia know? Right. Um, I wonder if this is an indication that Mojo has ears everywhere, right? Because we know for a fact that he had a mole inside of us, inside Saturnine's, uh, you know, handlers. Right. Someone was reporting to him that there was a contest of swords going on. So stands to reason that perhaps he has uh, he has a mole on Krakoa somewhere. And I tell you, that's almost enough to get me interested in a Mojo story because that could just be very interesting to learn all about. And I know we know we're not done in Mojo World because Shatterstar is still there, and uh, Lorna said they'll try to get him back. So I know there is business to attend to there. But I feel like if if Mojo does have uh, some sort of a way of getting information from Krakoa, I, I think that makes him a much more effective. And a much more interesting um, foe or antagonist for this era of uh, X-Men comics. So that could be really cool. Uh, Let's talk about the Crucible and Sophia suggesting that maybe Prodigy went through it. I feel like she really showed her hand there. Um, She didn't want to leave the, the Adam X hot seat or whatever the hell show that was until she was shot in the head. Um, because she knew from knowing what the Crucible was that if you die without powers, you could be brought back with powers. So this feels like it was, you know, suicide by reality show. 
And it's funny how, like, she just assumes that everyone else would do that. I will concede that it's been a long time since I read that Academy X stuff. So I don't know how bummed out she was when she lost her powers. I know a lot of the mutants who lost their powers were extremely bummed out. I don't know that Sophia stood out uh, above and beyond any of the others. But I feel like we're building this character now. I feel like we're building bits and pieces to show... That she defined herself from, you know, her ability to fly and whatever secondary powers she may have had, I couldn't tell you from the top of the, top of my head. But uh, I really like this. I like the fact that the, anytime the Crucible comes up, I'm going to be interested in, in discussing that because it's a very heavy subject, and I'm almost disappointed that we haven't gone back to it as often as I think we we should because, like I said, it's a heavy subject and it does. Deserve a lot of analysis and discussion And I tell you, I was just happy to see the word on the page again So that was uh, that was really cool um, Now Adam X uh, We see Adam X here And he is, of course I mean, he is the funny haha character He's the OMG, how 90s character And all that tired stuff here um, I do wonder Because the X-Men Legends book As far as I know, is not a not a Hickman book, right? Um, so I don't know if it'll be something that we cover as a regular episode of the show. It might be a special that we do if we decide to do it. Um, I will have to leave that to those of you who have already read it to let me know if this is something that does fit into the current uh, stories. Uh, and if it does, I, I will absolutely cover it. I've got no problem dedicating episodes to any any books that, uh, that you all feel are pertinent to the... Uh, to the arc here, so you guys gotta let me know that. Um, I mentioned it was cool seeing the Academy X kids. It's been a long time. Um, I feel like they are kind of the lost generation of uh, of young mutants, and I mean they kind of deserve to be because I mean Marvel was just flooding us with these new mutants and telling us to care about them, and it was uh, it was a, it's a tough sell even in the best of times, right? I mean, they gave us the new mutants. This is way before my time, but uh, I think people just accepted them because they there weren't millions of mutants running around. Uh, Generation X was my young mutants team, and the way they gave them to us, they they kind of uh, peppered them through that Phalanx Covenant story. We had a we had a familiar point of view character in Jubilee. Um, it felt like a an evolution of. Of Jubilee's story in the main X-Men book here And so it was it, it felt organic, right? The Academy X book That was all a result of like the big mutant population boom And uh, Morrison turning the mansion into uh, the, <laughs> the comparison I've heard from several people Was that uh, the X-Mansion turned into uh, Whatever school Harry Potter went to <laughs> Where, where uh, it's just all these characters here And all these Powered characters, I suppose And the Academy X kids were part of that Where, I mean, there were just so many new mutants being being introduced And it was kind of hard to It was kind of hard to, like, focus on They broke the teams into squads They broke all these new mutants into squads So we had, you know, the Academy X team I don't remember what they were called but uh, that was where you'd had like Prodigy and Surge and Elixir And then there were the Hellions team Which had Hellion and Rockslide and Dust and Mercury, I think 
they were like the the Corsairs was like Cyclops' team, but I don't remember anybody on it. Loa, maybe? I don't know. But it was like each of the ex-mentors had like their little squad, which I think is another thing people would uh, compare to Harry Potter. Uh, does that like the... Uh, the snake slither slither. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I've never read or watched Harry Potter, but uh, I know that there are different patches, so I'm assuming that they're different squads. But uh, I feel like since that era kind of wound down, um, they really haven't gotten all that much play, and I think they there were a lot of fodder for for losing powers after M Day. Um, they were also fodder for just the pile of bodies here. Um, it's, it's mentioned in this issue here that they compare their era with uh, that of a snuff film. And uh, if, you, if you remember, pre-New 52, the uh, Teen Titans book, the, uh, the one that launched in 2003 with uh, Jeff Johns, started off spectacularly strong, really made uh, the Teen Titans uh, like an A-list group. Well, Jeff Johns moved on. And then all of a sudden, we had writers who were basically trying to outdo the, the one that came before them in murdering, dismembering, and just destroying Teen Titans here. There was actually a cover of an issue of Teen Titans. It was Volume 3. It was just a casket with the, with the Titans logo on it. It's like, guess who dies now? It's like, what? <laughs> they're all, they're, they were there to die. And the Academy X kids were kind of that for the X-Men. They just kept dying and dying and dying. So I'm thinking the snuff film comment might be a commentary on that run here. But uh, we know they're all back. Uh, Emma and Danny did talk about how they're all back, except for poor Rockslide, who uh, who uh, he's back, but not back, you know. Uh, the Dak and Dakin Aurora romance. I'm digging it. I'm digging it. I, I think uh, they they are fun together, and we don't see much of it together. But they just feel like they could be a fun, fun little coupling. Um, even though we've got you know Dak and Dakin doing his etchings. <laughs> I mean, that's just silliness. But uh, I, I think this could be an interesting, an interesting development in the book here, and uh, I, I look forward to seeing more of it. Now, with uh, keeping with Emma Frost here, uh, we. Get the talk that, you know, her heart grew two sizes uh, every time she <laughs> loses a student or something. Come on, really? I don't know. It felt like a very um, kind of a contrived scene just to let us know that, you know, Emma feels bad and, uh, oh, now she's over it and they're going to go get a drink. I don't know. Uh, the art. Let's talk about the art here. The last thing we'll talk about for uh, the issue here. The art is still growing on me. Uh, you'll know if you've been listening to this show for a while that... When we came into X Factor number one, I was like, what in the hell is this? Was not a fan of it, but I do feel now that, uh, and maybe it's because we just did the whole uh, Gwenpool miniseries, but uh, I feel like it really suits the, uh, the stories that we're getting here. Um, and even though I've been, get, I've been making fun of Aurora and her role eyes here, I can't deny that it looks good. It's very fitting for her character and the context of uh, the situation. And I mean, it's just, it just looks good. It really does look good. But uh, overall, I'm coming around on this series, and I'm very, very happy about that. Uh, when we read, what was it, X-Factor number two, I oof, <laughs> that was a tough one for me. But uh, uh, we've been getting, it's been, it's been turning around for me, and I've been turning around on it. So uh, really good. If you're not reading X-Factor, um, 
and you're not into the mojo stuff, I'd I'd recommend maybe checking out this uh, this post X of Tens uh, run here to see uh, to see if that's more your speed. If you're not huge into mojo, but you like the characters, I think you'll I think you'll enjoy this one. Now, speaking of which, let's talk about this was the final Dawn of X Wave Two Number Five. I, can we even call them the Dawn of X Wave Two? I, I guess we can, because we'll have to call, like, uh, Sword and uh, Children of the Atom, if that ever comes out. We'll have to call that, like, Reign of X Wave 1, I think. Yeah, we'll worry about that another day. But we got power rankings here, right? Dawn of X Wave 2 number 5s. Now, the best book out of the Wave 2 number 5s was, well, Hellions, of course. It's, like, my favorite book on the, on the stands right now. Uh, wonderful issue here. This was the first part of the uh, X of Tens crossover where our team decided to go sword swiping and uh, Sinister got himself talked into going with them and they traded a horse for uh, passage and, uh, and a cape, of course. Uh, but a uh, really, really fun issue. Hell of a good time. For number two, and it's close, I'd give this issue of X Factor the, uh, the second best Dawn of X Wave 2 number five. Had a really good time with it, as is hopefully apparent in my (laughs) discussion today. Third is Cable. Um, That was the uh, Exoswords sword uh, satellite issue, which, eh, you know. And we wrap it up with Wolverine, because of course we do. Um, So, Dawn of X, Wave 2, number 5. Hellions, X-Factor, Cable, and Wolverine. So, agree, disagree? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Please feel free to share your power rankings with me as well. Now let's hop into the mailbag here. We just got one letter today, and it's from Evan. He's talking about Exoswords Destruction number 1, so he is finally out the other end of Exoswords with the rest of us. He says... When I saw Jean's To Me My X-Men, I thought, man, Chris is going to love that. <laughs> I agree. It's been used so much in the Hoxbox Docs era that it's lost its effectiveness. Yes, uh, I, I believe I commented on that. It's, it's so played out, isn't it? From time to time, I'll talk about, you know, those things that writers would, they really want to write. You know, if it's an X-Men book, they want to write in the To Me My X-Men. If it's Batman, they want to retell the origin. They want to show the pearls bouncing down Crime Alley as, uh, as Joe Chill takes out uh, Thomas and Martha. They want to do that. And every time you do it, it, it only cheapens it, I feel. Um, and, and I don't want to talk about like whether or not something is earned, because I mean these are just silly things here that only I worry about. But I agree that it's lost its effectiveness. <laughs> and I'm glad you agree that it's lost its effectiveness. Uh, Evan continues. I thought the escalating armies worked in the issue, but I also agree that the lack of any real casualties undercut the drama in retrospect. And it's true. And I don't know if we were, if we had our expectations set the wrong way, or maybe we filled in the expectations with our own headcanon here, but when we talk about a tournament to the death, to me that sounds like it's going to come down to one. Right? It's going to come down to one, and there's going to be a lot of death. And uh, there really wasn't. There really wasn't. And, uh, I mean, the armies are here. We have the X-Men coming in. We have Jubilee coming in with the Green Priestesses. We have the Amenthi Demons, and nobody's dying. You know, the demons are going away, but, I mean, how, how, how much can you kill a demon? I don't know. Uh, Evan continues. 
Part of me likes the way they clearly listed each of the 22 parts, but I wonder if this wouldn't have benefited in, from some of the more traditional, looser crossover setup. Maybe even the old Onslaught phase-slash-impact setup, where certain issues were part of the core story and others were the periphery. And I'm not sure that system worked either. I, You know, I don't know. I don't know. as Because going into this, I think I mentioned that I wasn't sure whether or not this was going to be like a Executioner Song type story or a, uh, a Fall of the Mutants type of story where it's just all the all, all the books are branded the same way, but they're not. They could be read in any order, uh, you know, per month, I suppose. I feel like this was a case of Marvel trying to eat their cake and have it too here. Um, they were going for the, they were gunning for the completionist, right? Twenty-two parts. You got to get all of them because they're numbered. But I mean, we had stories that were very much on the periphery. We had the two-part Hellion story, which wasn't part of the story really at all, outside of you know the scheme. We had all the gathering of swords stuff, which was very very fillery and could have been read in. Outside of just like a few scenes in each issue Could have been written or read in any order Because it didn't matter It's like, okay, well Wolverine got his sword Does it matter if he got it before Storm got hers? Not really Not really I definitely feel like there was a This was this was a completionist Sort of a, a gotcha Where it's like Well, you're not going to buy 18 out of the 22 Right? If you're buying 18, you're buying 22 of them and hell, maybe if you're just buying 10 of them, you're still going to buy the 22 because it's just easier to do it that way and, and not miss out on things. Because, you know, I, I'd love to uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from someone who is just buying one of these books, right? Someone who didn't buy in to the X of Tens um, event. Like, I wonder if there's anyone out there who just said, oh, I'm, I'm just buying Marauders or I'm just buying X-Men, you know? And reading through those as standalone issues here, I mean... I, I don't know how satisfying that would be Or is that just something you get as a completionist For one book and just wait until It, it passes and then start reading again I don't know I'm, I'm thinking about someone who would uh, who would Just buy X-Men and it's like You have issue 12 and then issue 14 is Issue 12 again <laughs> That's gotta be uh, That's gotta be a toughie uh, Evan continues I'm not gonna power rank the issues yet, anyway. But I would I would put Hellions number six, the Dinner Party two parter, and New Mutants number thirteen, which was undercut by the later lack of mortal danger to Doug in the top tier. And that gives me a really good idea here. I think uh, I think we should do a tier list for the Exit Ten story here. And for the most part, I agree. Uh, the Hellion story, the the Dinner Party was great. New Mutants number thirteen, I wasn't so hot on. I mean, it wasn't bad. But it just felt uh, a little little samey when it comes to, to Doug Ramsey stories. Uh, Evan wraps up with, My question coming out of this, and it's a good one, Who takes over for Apocalypse in The Crucible? The answer should be they quit doing it because killing someone because their genetic code makes them somehow less is, everything, is against everything the X-Men are supposed to stand for. But Iska the Unbeaten seems like the perfect successor, No. Awesome question, and I never even thought of it. I never even thought about how the Crucible would continue with Apocalypse Gone. Now, take discounting, discounting the new Arachonians or Iraqis. If Apocalypse was gone, I think my first pick to replace him would have been Gorgon, but he's gone too. <laughs> um, maybe Magneto. I don't know. 
Um, that's uh, that's an awesome question here, and I, it makes me wonder if, especially after this issue where the Crucible did come up in conversation again, will we be seeing it again? And of course, you're right. You're 100 percent right. The the answer is that they they should quit doing it, and they never should have done it in the first place. But uh, I really wonder. Uh, I really wonder if we're going to get another issue of the Crucible here. I know that we have the uh, the Way of X, the Nightcrawler uh, focus series here. You gotta imagine if he's putting together a mutant religion, as it as it's rumored to be the I guess driving focus of that book. I gotta figure we'll be at least hearing a little bit more about the Crucible there, since it was only after seeing the Crucible that Nightcrawler was uh, hit with that uh, that profundity that he would like to start his own religion. So. I think we got more of it in store, and I really can't wait to see it. But if we are counting Iraqis or Arikikonians, um, Iska the Unbeaten is probably the best choice there. Uh, kind of takes the uh, kind of takes all the guesswork out of it because I think one of the questions that we'd asked uh, right after we read the Crucible was, "What happens if one of these non-powered mutants actually wins? Right? What would happen if someone is able to, you know, put Apocalypse on his ass?" And, uh, well, with Iska, her whole gimmick is that she can't be beat. She always wins, so that kind of takes any sort of ambiguity out of it. So she would definitely be the, uh, be the best choice to replace Apocalypse. And now after saying that, I, I kind of hope that they, they do that. I kind of hope that they do that. That could be a very interesting uh, little wrinkle there. But I want to thank you so much for, uh, for following us all the way through Exitens here and sharing your thoughts along the way. It's really, really meant a lot to me, and it, I've really enjoyed hearing your thoughts. Uh, while I've got you, Evan, uh, I want to hear your thoughts on X-Factor number one from back in the long ago here about Cyclops abandoning his family. So if you get a, if you get a free few minutes, give that a look and let us know. I, I'd really like to chat about that with you. But thanks again. Thanks again for writing in. Uh, and if anybody out there would like to write in and give some thoughts and maybe give some power rankings or tier lists, I'd love to see them and share them with everybody. You can find me a few different ways. Uh, I'm easy to find on Twitter. I'm at Ace Comics. You can also shoot me an old-fashioned email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.com. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and talk talk to your heart's content about whatever you want. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your listening needs, you can pop over to ChrisAndReggie.Podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me on this fine day or night or morning or evening or whenever it is. It really, really means the world to me. And uh, until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 139 of X Lapsed, where we are doing our very first Reign of X Wave 1 number one. Um, I want to say, uh, since I just received my DCBS order that came with a Marvel previews catalog, I think we're up to four of these Reign of X Wave 1 books here. Uh, we have the one that we're going to be discussing today, Sword, Volume 2. There's also Way of X. There's also Children of the Atom, which they promise is eventually coming out, despite the fact that it's been pushed back forever. Um, and then I was surprised to see one called X-Core, or X-Corp, um, which I believe is a five- or six-issue miniseries that we'll be getting eh, probably in May or June, I believe. So our Reign of X... Uh, Cup sure do runneth over. Really looking forward to it. So uh, let's let's kick it off here with uh, with our discussion of Sword, Volume Two, Number One. This had a February 2021 cover date. The story is called Mysterium, written by Al Ewing and art by oh boy, how do I say this name? Um, Valerio S C H I T I. I don't want to say it phonetically. Um, Valerio will say Sheedy. Hmm? Okay. Colors, Marty Gracia. Letters, VCs, Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa White Sabolski. Cover price, $5. This one went on sale December 9, 2020. So what is Sword? What is Sword? Now, we saw a little bit of Sword in our, uh, well, X of Swords uh, deal that we just wrapped up. And I suppose we could start by getting the anagram out of the way, because this is not just S.W.O.R.D., it's S-W-O-R-D, which stands for Sentient World Observation and Response Department. Now, their first appearance was in Astonishing X-Men number 3. This is the ongoing Astonishing, uh, September 2004 cover date. So they are a Joss Whedon contribution to the X-Men lore, which is probably the main reason why they're still around. Now, they couldn't carry their own ongoing series back in 2010, 2011 or so, but I suppose we're hoping things will be different now. Personally, uh, I mean, you know me in space stuff. <laughs> um, this feels like it might just be a little bit of bloat and uh, kind of a concept that maybe still can't carry its own ongoing series, you know? Uh, if this were a mini, might feel a little differently about that, but as an ongoing... I'm not sure how to feel. Let's let's check out the issue and see if my uh, if my thoughts change in the process here. So we open on uh, one of those mostly blank quote pages. Only it's not a white page. It's uh, got like a uh, a space background here. The quote comes from Abigail Brand, who is Sword's snarky station commander, and uh, she always kind of reminded me of like a lesser Maria Hill, but now she's just got the haircut to match. Anyway, this page has five words on it. This is what comes next. 
Then, comics, and we see a metal orb flying from the Earth up to the sword satellite, the peak. Now we can see that the satellite is now covered in lush green, likely a sign that there's some Krakoa plant hoodoo and tech in the mix now. We get an info page, and it's a chain of command chart, which is pretty cool. It introduces us to our entire crew, and I suppose we can also call this a roll call. And we'll, uh, we'll go through the line here. Now atop the chain are Brand, the station commander, and Magneto, the council representative. Down a level we meet a group called the Six, not to be confused with the Five, also not to be confused with the Six from Mutant X, I, I would assume. Now they have a tech team, and it's a one-man operation, and it's represented by WizKid. Y'all remember WizKid? Yeah, I'm pretty sure the only reason he was included, so all of us who do remember him can say, hey, I remember him. Then we've got Logistics, and it's led by Manifold. Below him are the teleportation team, which includes Blink, Lila Cheney, Gateway, a Vanisher, and Amelia Vot. Then we have our medical resources, and uh, uh, this kind of ruins the surprise of, uh, of an appearance later on, but I think we all know that Fabian Cortez is going to be part of this book, but... Uh, it would have been neater to have that as a surprise. And he is listed as an executive producer, which uh, might mean he does nothing. I don't know. Next up, the Diplomacy Department, which is led by Frenzy. And below her is an ambassador in training, Armor. Then a galactic ambassador in Pybok, a Skrull who is part of the Kree Skrull Alliance, which I'm assuming is a pretty new thing because last I knew they fought like cats and dogs, so... I suppose they allied in a story that either I didn't read or one that I had purged from my memory. Then we got our security team. It's led by Kid Cable, whose solo book, I hope, doesn't get all mucked up with sword stuff. I really would like to keep them separate. Uh, below him are subdirectors in Random and Risk. Finally, Observation, which is led by, well, a redacted person, Unknown. Below the redacted person is Peeper. You all remember Peeper? Well, you will. So uh, this is kind of one of them, what I would call an Alvaro team, right? We got WizKid, Random, Peeper. Uh, the Alvaro teams is a, is a reference to the old Alvaro uh, comic boards, which I think are still a thing. I'm pretty sure the last time I looked they were still around, but I first found them in the mid-'90s, and it felt like every single post was... Some sort of a take on, hey, wouldn't it be cool if... And they would list, like, the most mishmashed random team ever. It's like, wouldn't it be cool if if Polaris led a team that had uh, the fourth and sixth Guthrie kids and Blink and uh, Lockheed the Dragon, you know? And and maybe we'll throw a villain in there, too. Mesmero. We'll throw Mesmero in there. And that, that seemed to be what, like, every other post on these boards were. So this kind of feels to me like a, hey, here's some random people. Here's some weirdos, but hopefully there's a, a little bit more substance to this than uh, those message board posts and suggestions. Now, it's worth noting that this crew is assigned to Redacted X. I'm not sure who this might be, and uh, at the moment I'm not terribly interested. Hopefully that'll change. Anywho, we get back to comics, and we see that the metal orb that arrived at the station actually contained Magneto, who was immediately greeted by Kid Cable. Now, Kid Cable is flanked by Random and Risk. Cable immediately makes fun of Magneto for being old and uh, suggests he might possibly die of old age soon. And I didn't realize they had quite this chummy a relationship, but whatever. 
Anyway, Cable asks what Magneto's doing here, to which we learn that he's here on behalf of the Quiet Council to perform an inspection. Magneto then meets up with Abigail Brand. Now, she's surprised that uh, Magneto would travel to the satellite under his own power, you know, via that metal orb thingy, rather than just walking through a gateway. And it's a good question, but if I were to hazard a guess as to why he did that, uh, I think he only came that way in order to facilitate the semi-cinematic opening few pages we got, where we can actually see the size and scope of this, uh, of this vessel and the trip. Next up, an info page, and it's from the pages of Abigail Brand's personal log, and oh boy, this is a long one. And I gotta say, her writing style feels like when you're writing a term paper, and you find out you have like a minimum word count you gotta meet, so you, uh, you suddenly like break up every contraction, and you repeat yourself just like changing a few words around just to like push your point and get you to that limit. It's a lot of words here. A lot of words. Back to comics. Magneto meets up with Wizkid, and we get a page of uh, making fun of Wizkid's name. Okay. Brand informs Magneto that Takeshi is one of the six, which changes Magneto's tune a bit. He's suddenly much more amenable to being nice to him. Then we get a bit of a debate about the methodology and goals of S.W.O.R.D. And I feel like this might just be the straw that stirs the drink for this series, at least early on, maybe just the first arc. You never know. Now we have Magneto, of course. He is Ra-Ra Krakoa, you know, through and through. And he views S.W.O.R.D. as an extension of Krakoa, working with Krakoa as its top priority. Now, Brand doesn't outright disagree, however, feels S.W.O.R.D. should be focused not so much on just one nation, but maybe broadening the scope to the entire world and universe. And the debate really doesn't go all that far. They kind of just agree to disagree, but it's very, very well done here that we have the representative of the Quiet Council viewing this entire enterprise as one thing, but the person, the operations manager of the enterprise, maybe feels like the scope should be broadened to not just protecting one country, not just representing the interests of one country, but realizing that there's a wider world and universe out there. It's very, very well done, and I like this. I hope there's more, I hope there's more of this uh, moving forward. Next, we are off to the diplomatic suite where Magneto checks in on Frenzy. Now, she's practicing diplomacy, by beating the hell out of Pybok. Magneto then meets Pybok. Brand tells him that since the Kree and Skrull have allied, they're now equal in power to the Shi'ar. So this, uh, this Kree-Skrull alliance is just as strong as the Shi'ar. Um, and to be honest, I hate everything about that sentence, mostly because I couldn't give a rat's ass about any of them. I hope we don't get more of that. Now, Brand also speaks of the Kree Skrull Emperor's mother-in-law being an enemy of the state to Krakoa, and how that might be a little inconvenient, which actually made me go and research a little bit. So, let's jump back to last fall, right? Um, the new Kree Skrull Emperor is Hulkling, and he is newly married to Wiccan, who is one of the Scarlet Witch's sons, so... Ipso facto here, the Emperor's mother-in-law is an enemy of the state of Krakoa, the Scarlet Witch. Magneto looks forlorn as he refers to Wanda as, quote, the Pretender, which, more of that, that's fine. Now, as he and Brand head off, Pybok asks Frenzy what her relationship to Magneto was, to which she says at one point she basically worshipped him. And, well, yeah, she was one of his acolytes back in the long ago. 
Speaking of acolytes, uh, already spoiled it during the roll call here, but are you ready for the next encounter? It's Fabian Friggin' Cortez, who I kind of feel has been distilled Vartok style into acting a certain way simply because he looks a certain way. You know, like, uh, he, he seems to have lost a lot of his depth here. He's acting like quite the ponce, right? Which really wasn't the vibe I'd gotten from him during his earlier appearances. I mean, he was a scumbag and a conniver, but here he's coming across like a, like a butt-kissing Eddie Haskell type. Which, maybe we can massage that into work in here, but it feels kind of strange. Um, it's worth noting, uh, the art in this scene, and actually throughout the entire issue, has been quite excellent. But I'm especially loving the expressions on Magneto and Brand's faces here as Fabian Cortez just waxes on very poetically about uh, what a great asset he's going to be to this endeavor and uh, just really, really kissing up to Magneto. So while it doesn't really feel like the Fabian Cortez that I know and remember, I can't dislike it. (laughs) It's, It's actually quite entertaining. So... Turns out nobody seems all that happy to be working with Cortez because he is kind of a dick. But he fills a role that he's needed for, at least for now. I guess if they find anyone better, maybe they'll uh, they'll dump old Fabian Cortez. Okay, next stop is the jump suite, where Magneto and we can be introduced to the teleportation team. Now, they're led by Manifold, as we talked about on the roll call, who I don't think has ever been in an X-book to this point. I want to say that he's a Hickman character from his Avengers run. I don't know a whole heck of a lot about him. Then Magneto is overjoyed to see his old pal, Peeper. And uh, it seems like maybe uh, this might be an exaggerated uh, reunion here, because it seems to make Cortez very sad. You see, he wants to be Magneto's best pal and lackey again, and here we have Magneto fawning over Peeper, who... I want to say was a very, very short-lived ally to the Master of Magnetism here. So I feel like maybe this is a lot of this is for Fabian's benefit. But to be fair, I mean, Cortez probably only wants to be Magneto's lackey again until the opportunity presents itself to stab him in the back again, right? Now, finally, it's time to do the thing that we're here to do. So I, I, I haven't mentioned it yet, but there is a, there's been a mission in the works for the entire issue to this point. And... Uh, it's, it's, it's something. Uh, Manifold teleports the six somewhere. But before we get into that, we've got two info pages, and it's all about the six and their mission statement. You see, they're here to retrieve things for Krakoa, and they're referred to as a multiversal far retrieval circuit. Now, the first, first stage circuit are the teleporters, and we've met them. Blink, Cheney, Gateway, Vanisher, and Vod. The second stage circuit are the six. And we have our uh, representatives of each of these little uh, departments, I suppose, of S.W.O.R.D. Uh, The control is Wizkid, and we find out that there's a backup for him on Krakoa in Forge. The power is Fabian Cortez. There's a backup for him, but we don't find out who it is. The shield is Armor, and her backup is Skids. The guide is Manifold, and he has no Krakoan backup at the moment. The eye is Peeper, and his backup is Doc, whoever that is. And the foundry is Risk, and her backup is Zorn. So the gimmick here is that the six find the intergalactic MacGuffins, and the teleporters go and retrieve them, I think? I, I 
I'm not totally sure, because from here we get six pages of the Six's current mission. And it's, it's a weird bunch of pages here. It's very pretty to look at, but doesn't give us much outside of some, like, high-concept blurbs. Like, there's no dialogue, there's no narrative captions, it's just blurbs. And a lot of these high concepts are to the point where I feel like they would even make Jonathan Hickman raise an eyebrow and be like, whoa, you know. We've got Mysterium Tremendum, Elemental Cosmic Hot, White Hot Room of Secret Fire, which sounds familiar to a lot of us X-Fans, kinda, and Excelso Prey Omnibus Alice. <sighs> then, a double-page spread of creds. Huh. And this is a real throwback to the old Dawn of X look here. Uh, not sure if that's intentional or just something that is, because our Reign of X books have had the double-page spread of creds with the roll call. And our, sword, our X of Swords uh, double-page spread of creds were, like, blue. So this is a little bit different. It's a little bit of a throwback here to, I mean, a month ago. Then we get a full-page spread of the Sword satellite, which is now in geostationary orbit 22,000 miles above Kirkoa. And I wonder if there's supposed to be any sort of symbolism in an actual sword dangling over the island here, because the sword satellite, it's worth noting if you've never seen it, resembles a sword. Then, the teleporters retrieve the six, and Manifold appears holding a black angular shape. Not sure what it is, but I suppose it might just be what this opening arc is all about. I do know that we're going to be tying into the King in Black very soon, so maybe it's like a symbiote thing? I don't know. Whatever the case, Brand takes the thing and gets a full-page spread so she could say, quote, This is what comes next. And that's it. We wrap up with another quote page, and this one is from Doctor Doom. But that, my friends, is the first Reign of X, Wave 1, Number 1, Sword, Volume 2, Number 1. So let's talk about it, eh? Gotta say, I'm kind of torn on it. Kind of torn on it. Part of me... Yeah, before I talk about my feelings on it, um, let me get my preconceptions out of the way here, because I went into this... You would, you would picture, like, two very, very strong people dragging me backwards. You know, I'm, my, my heels are just dug into the ground, and I'm scraping, and I'm, I'm leaving two lines of, like, rumpled-up dirt, because I'm being pulled to read this book, because I really didn't want to... I didn't want it for a few reasons, a few of them we've already talked about, uh, not the least of which, I hate space stuff. Space stuff is boring to me. That said, after having read it, part of me kind of digs it. Um, part of me actively hates it, <laughs> don't get me wrong here. Uh, I mentioned earlier, like, had this been solicited as a miniseries, or maybe like a 12-issue maxi-series, if we still call them that... I think I'd be a little bit more on board with it. I just don't feel like this concept, regardless of how interesting it may be, can maintain an ongoing series. Not that Marvel's all that concerned when it comes to pulling the rug out from under an ongoing and retroactively calling it a miniseries. How you doing there, Fallen Angels? Um, this just seems like kind of a big ask for an ongoing. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to want to deal with space stuff on the regular. Uh, we will, since this is an all-inclusive project, but I'm hoping that the focus is going to be more on this odd array of characters than any of the high-concept stuff that we saw listed during that weird prolonged middle section, the, the, the Six's mission to get that angular little shape thing. Also, 
speaking of that six six page middle section there, I hope we don't get much more of that sort of storytelling. Um, I had to flip through those several times to retain anything at all. Might just be a Chris problem. It ain't the first, won't be the last, but I didn't dig the way that this information was presented to us. I thought this was a waste of waste of space, really. Um, and while it was pretty to look at, and it gives us some concepts, just, I, I wasn't a fan of the way it was delivered. Now, speaking of the missions here, I'm not entirely sure what the purpose of this series is. And it's kind of weird that we join Brand and Company after already being assembled and seemingly fully trained for whatever their cause is going to turn out to be. And that's not that I'm asking for like a six-issue lead-in where our crew is assembled or anything. Lord knows we get enough of that. But this feels like a little too neat and tidy. And at the same time, wholly disjointed from the rest of the X-Men line at this point. Taking it even further out of the X-Men line, I'm pretty sure we're... Either next issue or the following, we're jumping like right into King in Black. Uh, which, I mean, that's another thing I'm kind of mixed on. First, I mean, let's be fair, it totally makes sense that a, that a space station like, like S.W.O.R.D. would get involved with this sort of a threat, right? It would be weird if they didn't. But, on the other hand, this is a brand new series without much of an identity yet. And to drag it into a Marvel mass event right out the gate feels like maybe a little bit of a disservice here. Um, maybe a little bit of a cheat to uh, judge sales a little bit, make it seem like it's being received perhaps better than it is. It also tricks um, the completionists into buying the book that they may not be interested in and they may not stick with. But, I mean, those are Marvel things. Those are comic things. It's not something that I need to worry about. That's uh, way above my pay grade, but... It just feels a little gimmicky, and it kind of puts... I mean, I I don't know Ewing from A Hole in the Wall. I have not read any of his work until this, so I don't know if he'll be able to maintain a high level of characterization quality while, you know, playing in the King in Black sandbox. I hope he can. I hope he can, and I hope this isn't like some of our Exitens books where they were for all intents and purposes, put on hold so they could take part in a uh, bloated crossover. And uh, maybe we'll get back to them now, but I I just hope we're not pushing a pause button right out of the gate here. It feels kind of like a momentum killer. Hopefully Ewing can prove me wrong. Uh, Let's talk about some, some things, some of my takeaways here, some of the things that I dug. Now, as irksome as I usually find, like, the LOL, here's a wacky assortment of characters, you won't believe the one you'll see on page 5 treatment, I'll concede that this is a pretty interesting wacky assortment of characters, and I do look forward to spending more time with them. I appreciated how Magneto was kind of our POV character here, uh, especially considering how many characters, how many members of S.W.O.R.D. have a history with him. I mean, we got Fabian Cortez, we got Frenzy, who was an acolyte, Amelia Vought, who was an acolyte, Random, who was briefly an acolyte, and Peeper, who was uh, a member of that weird brotherhood he had back, uh, I want to say in the 70s, a long time ago. All very well done here. I, I enjoyed seeing Magneto seeing these folks and reacting. And those reactions, you know, they they went from hopeful to cynical, and it was it was really, really cool. Uh, I especially enjoyed the uh, that moment I mentioned during the synopsis here, that agree-to-disagree discussion he had with Brand. 
I mean, they have different overall goals, but the path to get there shares a lot of similarities here. There's a lot of overlap in protecting Krakoa, protecting the world, and protecting the universe. It's just, uh, we just have a different endpoint here. I think Magneto would be fine letting the universe burn so long as Krakoa is okay, where where Brand sees her mission as being a little bit more broad than that. And I appreciate that. And I, like I mentioned before, I hope I hope that this is something that we rub up against. As we, as we move forward during this series I also appreciate how Ewing had turned down the snark on Brand And actually made her feel like a character that I wouldn't mind seeing more of I mentioned that uh, I always viewed her as like a lesser Maria Hill And I really, really don't like reading about Maria Hill uh, It used to be that I'd want to just like hit a fast-forward button in my brain Anytime she came on panel Here, though, I feel like uh, she was handled and portrayed quite well uh, let's talk about the art. Uh, it was wonderful. Fantastic uh, facial expressions and stuff. And I, I'm not going to try to say the artist's name here. If anybody knows how to actually say their name, please let me know because I don't want to. I don't want to say something I shouldn't. Um, wonderful expressions, though. I, I gotta say there were some times where Magneto seemed to be afflicted by like Jim Carrey rubber face a little bit. Uh, though, in fairness. That might have been intentional to depict his reaction as being somewhat exaggerated and forced. Uh, and if that's the case, then I can dig it. I can dig it if he was like trying to, trying to, you know, uh, project a certain emotionality and uh, and just looked very forced when she when he did it. That's perfectly cool. Now, overall, again, I'm mixed. Um, I really, really enjoyed the character-centric bits of this. We didn't get much of it, but we got enough of it to know that I want to see more of it. I didn't care in the slightest for the actual work that they're going to be doing. You know, the space stuff, the space MacGuffins, the shapes that they're going to collect. Really don't care about any of that. So I'm hopeful that the strong dialogue and characterization can maybe soften the blow of the high-concept space stuff enough for me to continue to enjoy this. And if you're surprised I'm coming away from this issue uh, so positive, um, well, the line starts right behind me because uh, <laughs> no one's more surprised than I am that uh, I actually kind of dug this and uh, don't mind reading another issue of it. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Now, that's all I got to say about the first issue of the second volume of S.W.O.R.D. Uh, I hope to hear you guys' thoughts on it. And uh, speaking of thoughts, let's hop into the mailbag. Uh, we're going to start with Evan, who's talking about Gwenpool Strikes Back, our uh, little diversion to uh, explain how Gwenpool showed up in Exosword's destruction. Now, Evan says, I enjoyed your coverage of the issue in the series, and I'm glad that you enjoyed the character, who I've had a soft spot for for a while. Thanks for explaining Gwenpool Prime. I always assumed the character was born from a variant cover, but never knew the particulars. And uh, yes, Gwenpool Prime is uh, came out of a variant cover for Deadpool's Secret Secret Wars. Um, number one or number two, I think. I, I don't remember the exact number, but uh, it was during a Gwen Stacy uh, variant cover gimmick that they were doing. And uh, they did a Gwenpool one, which is Basically, Gwenpool, and she's sitting in a pool on a float, uh, drinking a, uh, a drink. And it's just a very random cover, and uh, that was her first appearance. And from it sprung this very interesting, very crazy, and very wonderful character. It's uh, very interesting. I don't know that any other character has been born of a variant cover. Um, I know for a little while, 
and maybe still, uh, Rob Liefeld uh, had said that his major X character, who we you know discussed at great length on this channel, actually made his first appearance as a variant cover for an issue of Spider-Man Deadpool. And I mean, that kind of opens a big can of worms, doesn't it? Uh, and I bet it could have made for a very, very fun episode of Comics Talk, trying to uh, you know discern what is an actual first appearance here. Um, I remember going through a price guide not too terribly long ago, and uh, I have a I have an obsession with collecting comics ephemera. I mean, I've talked about it a lot on this channel. I love grabbing old fanzines from like the 60s, 70s, and 80s. All the old comics press stuff, the Amazing Heroes is, the Comics Journals is, all that stuff. I just love it. I, I love having it on hand to look at, flip through, research in. And I was looking at my collection of Amazing Heroes uh, magazines. And I was making a list of uh, all the issues that I still needed. I, I need probably about half of them. I think there were like a hundred and hundred and something issues. I, I have about half of them. And I was going through just to see if uh, if I could get like pictures of the covers here, seeing if anything stood out to me. And I found out that one of the issues was very, very expensive. And I couldn't figure out why until I did a little bit of research on it. And I don't remember the actual number. But... I suppose in an issue of Amazing Heroes from, I'm going to say, somewhere in the mid-80s, early mid-80s, uh, was the first in-print appearance of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the form of an advertisement. And people went nuts for this thing, or they, they currently go nuts for it. And it made me wonder, like, what do you consider a first appearance? Do you consider it their first in-story appearance, their first cover appearance, their first cover, you know, a blurb in the back of an issue appearance. We, Growing up on Wizard Magazine, we'd always get, like, a, like Incredible Hulk 180, Cameo Wolverine, Incredible Hulk 181, First Appearance Wolverine. It's like, well, how, how, can, you, how can they both be, right? I'm thinking about, uh, what was it, New Mutants 86 had a picture of Cable in the next issue blurb, and then 87, there he is. What's his first appearance? Um... I think that could have been a very fun comics talk discussion. Just going through all the weird speculatory stuff that we do to, to you know, pump value into various pieces of uh, comics history and ephemera. It's just, I think there's a lot of meat on that bone to discuss, and I think it could have been a really, really good time. Uh, Evan continues. I, I ended up reading Fantastic Four number 26 first, and I was struck by how Gwen became a mutant in pretty much the same way Franklin did wanting to be special and warping reality to do it. Maybe Gwen took Franklin's spot in mutantum. I don't think it I don't think it's that meta, but I would prefer that explanation to Professor X's quote, remember when I irrevocably damaged your dad's mind to protect mutants? Oops, I just figured out you aren't one. My bad. Uh, Evan continues, I kid, Professor X didn't apologize because being homo superior means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> And I'm glad you mentioned that because of the first part, the first part I'm talking about here, because I didn't even put the the parallels together there. Uh, Gwen did warp reality to be classified as a mutant. We found out that Franklin did the very same thing, and I, I read those I read those stories right back to back, and I didn't put the pieces together there. That's very very interesting, and I definitely like that idea better than the one we got because uh, what we got kind of sucked. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk about that a little bit more next episode in uh, in your uh, feedback to Fantastic Four twenty six. But 
Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty lazy. Evan continues, I do hope Gwen shows up in X-Factor. If Polaris moves over to the X-Men, there will be an opening. I hope so, too, and we need to get that hashtag going here. Gwenpool for X-Factor. We gotta get that thing cooking. We gotta make sure our voices are heard here. Maybe we can get a uh, get her on the ballot for uh, for X-Factor if they, if they want to continue this voting gimmick. I would uh, love to see it happen. Evan continues, And hey, you brought up Squirrel Girl, so I don't have to. I can't think of an X-Lapse tie-in because I believe the whole series wrapped before any Hoxes poxed or X's dawned. She was a teammate of Sunspot and Cannonball on the new and U.S. Avengers. She was also unmutanted, not as an inhuman or a kill crop. Remember that from X-Factor? I barely do. I barely do as well. Or whatever happened to Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch? I, In Unbeatable Squirrel Girl Volume 2 Number 1, which came with a legacy number 9, really... Her mom said that a doctor told them she was, quote, medically and legally distinct from being a mutant, and I can never take this back. I can only assume that writer Ryan North was told to make her not a mutant anymore, and rather than concoct some weird reason readers would see right through, he just Occam razored that sucker and kept on telling his story. Yet another reason why I loved that series. And hey, that's a good enough reason for me. I mean, when you don't overthink it, I think you I think you feel more genuine in your explanation. I think that's kind of the problem with the Franklin thing. It's we need to think more about it, right? Where I guess with Squirrel Girl it was just kind of like, yeah, just don't talk about that anymore. Here we had to actually had to draw a line under it with Franklin and uh I feel like, you know, it's that whole sausage being made thing. We know how the sausage is made. We know all the weird politics at Marvel and all the weird, uh, you know, holding certain properties back and pushing certain properties and making sure there's some sort of a hierarchy because of the movies. Just uh, just say, this is the way it is, and just keep moving on. So that I, I definitely think that's a good way to do it in, in Squirrel Girl there. Sometimes it's just a case of, you know, it is what it is, and that's all it needs to be. That's all it needs to be. But I, I thank you so much for uh, for checking in on uh, Gwenpool there. I was hopeful that people would uh, would dig that episode, even though it was uh, you know quite off the beaten path and a little bit different from what we usually do on this show. Uh, when I saw that Krakoan Gate in uh, in Gwenpool Strikes Back number five, I was like, oh, got to do this one on the show. I just hope people will uh, I hope people will accept it. <laughs> As part of the show So thank you so much, Evan uh, Next, we've got Nicholas Who's talking about Fantastic Four number 26 He says, maybe when this whole X era is over You can catch up on the years of Fantastic Four runs Maybe call it Fantastic Four Lorn Or Fantastic Forgiveness Or fan- Fantastic Four Boating Depending on your degree of anticipation It's a shame to say But without a strong movie or television adaptation The Fantastic Four property has struggled To keep up with modern comics readers I only read a few issues from the 70s, 80s, and 2010s, but have never found a solid inroad. And you know, the Fantastic Four are a hard sell. They're a hard sell, and they're a book that I, like I mentioned during that episode, I never really cared for them. They were never my favorite. Um, I came in because Chris Claremont was writing it. And I had fallen in love with Claremont's early X-Men work from the the essential X-Men phone books. And it was like, okay, I gotta check this out. If it's Claremont on a Marvel property, I'm in. And that won me over. I I think that might be a pretty decent inroad if you are interested in checking it out. Uh, the the Heroes Return run is 
very traditional. Very traditional. It does feel a little old-fashioned, but, I mean, that's just a Fantastic Four. They, they do feel like a throwback. It's one of those... Uh, they're one of those properties that I always feel like I should like more because they just feel so comic booky. They, they're just like... They're everything you think about when you think about a, a superhero comic. They're bright. They're colorful. They got wonderful powers. They can go anywhere, do anything, have any sort of adventure. But it always kind of feels uh, dated. Even the issue we just read with uh, issue 26, it, it kind of felt a little bit like a throwback, despite having all the modern trappings of a Marvel comic. It's a, it is a tough sell. Um, I would recommend the Burn stuff, but that really feels like a throwback. Um, and Burn was uh, letting his inner Claremont shine there with just how many words he was cramming into these books, these pages. Uh, in the time it took uh, to read, like, one a John Byrne issue, we could probably have read half of uh, Exitens. It's <laughs> just a lot of stuff in there It's very good But it is a time investment for sure um, Another run which was good Was the uh, the Wade and Waringo run From the uh, early 2000s That was a fun one uh, But again, it, felt, it feels almost too traditional It's definitely one of the reasons Why I want to give the, the Hickman run Another look and another shake Because as mentioned time and again I kind of dismissed it I read it but I kind of hate Reddit because I saw the possibility or probability that the Marvel Universe was going to reboot at the end of it because we kept hearing about, you know, universes kind of enclosing on themselves and starting new and starting fresh. And uh, there was a lot of weird stuff going on with Franklin. And I just assumed, you know, I was wrong. I was completely wrong, but I assumed that it was going to end with a New 52 Style reboot because this was right on the heels of the new 52 and uh, I mean if nothing else the uh, these comic companies the big two at least they they do chase each other's tail quite often and uh, I was afraid that we were going to get a whole we were going to get 53 number ones from Marvel in 2011 2012 or so so I do want to give that one another shot um, maybe one of these days maybe one of these days but uh I want to thank you so much for uh, checking out that episode. That was another episode I was a little bit nervous about adding here because of uh, how tenuous the ties to the X-Men and Krakoa are. It was just a single page of Professor X acting like a jerk to Franklin. But we did see Artie and Leech as well, so I guess uh, I guess that's kind of an X-Men tie, <laughs> depending on if we do see them in the background of panels in Krakoa from this point on. But... Uh, I was a little nervous about including that one. Didn't know if uh, folks would want to hear thoughts on Fantastic Four. Hopefully, hopefully folks did, and I really appreciate you checking it out and uh, and also checking in with your thoughts on the property. But that is where we're going to leave it for today. Uh, if anybody out there would like to check in and share your thoughts on, well, just about anything, you could do so very easily. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can check in on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can hear all your Chris and Reggie stuff at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Uh, we are, I think we're officially in the Reign of X now. We're actually in our first book that's launched as a part of Reign of X, so... Uh, we're about ankle deep right now, so that's a good thing. Um, I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. 
And till next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 146 of X-Lapse, where uh, we're finally getting an epilogue to uh, the Festival of Swords, X of Tens. Uh, we've uh, covered what, about uh, at least a half dozen uh, Reign of X titles so far, but it's finally with this issue that we're going to get a little bit of uh, what happens next, at least for the overall uh, arc of uh, wherever it is that we're headed. Now today we're going to be talking about X-Men, Volume 5, Number 16. It had a February 2021 cover date. The story is called Sorted Out. Written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Phil Noto. Letters, VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, edits Bisa white Sabolski. cover price $3.99. This one went on sale December 30th of 2020. Now before we get into the issue itself here, I do want to just look at the cover here uh, briefly. Briefly, because... Uh, over the past week or so, I started putting together a lot of the, uh, you know, my my silly album art, you know, where I manipulate the cover in some sort of way and do the sepia tone and put it behind our little logo and stuff, you know, the thing I do every day. Well, I did like the next 15 or 20 of those uh, during the past week here, just getting a little bit ahead of schedule here. And I noticed that a couple of the issues that we're going to be covering over the next several weeks had, like, the eyes of Krakoa toward the top uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the cover in the background here. Uh, off the top of my head, it's this issue, and there's also an issue of Excalibur that'll be coming up pretty soon that has the eyes of Krakoa in the background here. I don't know if it means anything. I don't know. And, I mean, a cover is a cover, and, I mean, covers... By and large, don't really matter anymore. So maybe this is just a coincidence. Maybe there's no thematic link between these issues, uh, or maybe there's a maybe this is a hint. Maybe something we need to pay attention to. I couldn't say one way or another. Just something that stood out to me, <laughs> and I figured I would mention it. So let's get into the issue itself here. 
We open on Krakoa with Cyclops, Rachel, and Kid Cable looking on as the Arako Point, which, uh... We first saw that back in X-Men number two, and it's where the Summers family went and they met the creepy summoner for the first time. We see this point being pushed away from Krakoa. Now, you see, the external gate was created at the Arako point, and that gate will somehow bring the rest of Arako over to Earth, you know, per the trade agreement at the end of X of Tens. So, uh, hey, at least that answers that. Arako will be on 616 Earth. So that's a good thing. Anyway, that's exactly what happens. Arako appears, and just when it looks as though it will remerge with Krakoa in order to become Okara, well, it doesn't. Hmm. Uh, the uh, the islands are uh, they're not on the same wavelength at the moment. It's worth noting that Arako is a whole lot bigger than Krakoa and is rather mountainous. You can see just like peaks everywhere here. So really makes Krakoa look uh, very small, and we're, we'll, we'll come to find out that it is, you know, a good deal smaller and a great deal less dense with a mutant humanity, I guess we could say. From here, double-page spread of roll call and creds. This issue will focus on Cyclops, Rachel Summers, Kid Cable, Cypher, Professor X, Call Me Kate, Magneto, Emma Frost, Mystique, Exodus, Nightcrawler, Sebastian Shaw, Mr. Sinister, Storm, Iska the Unbeaten, and Jean Grey. Back to comics, and we next join Cypher as he tries to broker a chat between the living islands of Krakoa and Arako. Krakoa itself rises out of the island, looking like a weird, less... Like a giant, less swampy swamp thing Or, like I guess, a tree <laughs> um, It trudges into the drink Where it meets the giant tree version of Arako Doug attempts to mediate this discussion Which doesn't go too far And so, Doug reports his findings to the Quiet Council Now, it's worth noting Before getting in too deep here Despite this issue coming out several weeks after Marauders number 16 Sebastian Shaw appears to be in his usual state Which is to say, Kitty, Emma, Storm, and Lockheed haven't yet, you know, done the thing to him Anyway, the council wonders, since the islands don't seem willing to merge Exactly what the whole point of this Festival of Swords was Which, I I don't know if they're they're representing a large swath of the readership here uh, Accidentally or on purpose, but uh, I'm wondering that myself Um, Well... If they didn't know by now that they were being used as pawns by Saturnine, then, you know, I don't know what to tell them. That that was kind of the point of it. Anyway, Doug, he uh, mentions that, uh, he reminds everyone that uh, because of this bloated event, he got himself a wife. And a half-hearted round of thumbs-ups from his peers follows. It's like, yeah, great kid. Yeah, good for you, pal. Uh, Magneto then turns things over to Mr. Sinister, who might serve as something of a de facto expert on all things Arako, since he's the only member of the Quiet Council who actually went there. Or so they think. Now, we know from the Hellions two-parter that Sinister sent a clone to Arako in his stead. That clone died. And so this Sinister, I'm not entirely sure if they've got the hive mind thing going on, but... He's probably not quite as knowledgeable about the place as the others might think. He simply declines to speak here, citing that the memories are just too painful. So, uh, I don't know where we'd put that on the sassy sinister meter, but, uh, it's something, I guess. 
Now, Doug asks Krakoa if there's any way the islands might reconsider and rejoin. Krakoa replies that it's not really a problem for the mutants to worry about, it's just uh, the two halves aren't gelling. Doug then reminds the council that, uh, well, it's not just Arako that showed up in the 616, it's all them mutants who live on Arako as well, like millions of them. Emma Frost asks what they intend to do with all of them, which prompts Xavier and Magneto to decide to go on a little welcoming visit. And so, we shift scenes over to Arako, where we see Iska the Unbeaten killing a remaining Amenthi demon, which is uh, kind of troubling, isn't it? Um, let's just hope this is the last Amenthi demon, because I really don't want to read another 22-part story about the Amenthis that stowed away on Arako. Let's not even put that out into the universe. Anyway, she's greeted by Charles and Eric. And while it's not an outright contentious exchange, it's definitely less than cordial. Now, Xavier presents her with a gateway plant to facilitate travel between the islands, and uh, she doesn't seem impressed. Uh, We get the impression that the Iraqis look down on the Krakoans and their attempt at creating a culture. She calls the uh, Magneto and Professor X children running a child government. She's also less than impressed at the idea that the mutants are willing to share this planet with humans. And uh, she even tries to give them a little bit of credit and assumes that these humans are something, you know, very, very special. To which Magneto's like, nah, they're just people. They're just men, you know, so. Uh, Not winning any points with Oliska. Now, Iska reveals that it's not only the island itself that isn't keen on integration or rejoining with Krakoa, it's her people as well. Though, she assures them that she'll present this to the Great Ring of Arako for consideration, which is their take on the Quiet Council. This takes us to an info page all about, hey, that Great Ring of Arako. Just like the Quiet Council, it's broken into four groups of three members each. There are also two spots for the island itself and its translator, just like Doug and Krakoa. So, let's go through them. We got the Dark Quarter. Seat 1, Iska the Unbeaten. We gotta assume that she took that seat from Genesis, who is not here anymore. Seat 2 is Idol. Now, I wanna say this was the like the prophet or the precog who uh, warned the original Iraqi uh, Quiet Council unit of the fall of Arako uh, during the uh, the story that we got twice. We got it in X-Men 14 and X-Men 12. Uh, and I also want to say that uh, this idol was presented as a cohort or a cribmate of the Creepy Summoner. And, you know, this might be interesting, uh, as idol's powers are, uh, well, they're kind of similar to those of Destiny, and we know she's a no-go right now, so that is uh, quite interesting. Seat three is Tarn the Uncaring. Hey, we know that guy. That's the guy with the locust vial who absolutely destroyed the Hellions when they went over to swipe the swords. If you if you don't remember, he's kind of the Iraqi take on Mr. Sinister. He's a, a geneticist and just a mad scientist who, uh, he's kind of a creep. And his, uh, his locust vial are very, very creepy. So that is interesting to see him in a position of power here, and it does open up a lot of possibilities. Knowing that he's even just on this planet is uh, is interesting in and of itself. Now, the second quarter are, is the Dusk Quarter. Seat 4, Aura Serrata the Witness. Seat 5 is Stolgid, or Stolgid. Seat 6 is Lotus Logos. 
And um, now those are some uh, rather generic Hickman-y names, aren't they? Uh, I don't know who any of those folks are. I'm going to assume they're new, or maybe I glossed over them when I read X-Men 12 and 14. I don't know. Uh, the third quarter is the day quarter. Seat 7 is Laktuka. Okay. Seat 8 is Redacted. We don't know who that is. And seat 9 is Sabunar. So even more generic Hickmany names. I gotta hope at least one of these characters has antlers, right? Uh, these are high concepts. Uh, seats 10 and 11 belong to Araco, the island itself, and Redroot the Forest as a translator. Unfortunately, Redroot is currently living in a jar at Bad Jim Jasper's place for breaking something during a foot race with uh, Captain Avalon back in the Exit 10 story. The fourth and final quarter is the Night Quarter, and seats 12 through 14 are all redacted, so we don't know who any of these folks are. We turn the page and we get another info page, and this is a diagram of the seating arrangement for the Great Ring, which... I mean, it's wildly unnecessary. We could have all probably assumed that they had a similar formation to the Quiet Council, which they do. From here, we go back to comics, and we're back to Krakoa. Magneto and Xavier present an opportunity to Cyclops and Jean. Now, since the Quiet Council is down to ten members, they suggest that A, Jean retake her seat, and B, Cyclops takes the seat left vacant by Apocalypse. And they both decline citing that their current goal of officially reforming the X-Men is their top priority, and that the X-Men need to be something completely separate from the Quiet Council. Xavier and Magneto begrudgingly understand. Cyclops assures them that he will continue with his responsibilities as a Krakoan captain, which kind of reminds me, are they going to replace Gorgon, or are they just going to slot him right back into uh, the position, even though he... Well, we don't know how he came back, but we heard he came back weird, so, hmm. Now, we wrap up the issue with Xavier asking Scott and Jean how they're going to put together their team. To which, they suggest that since the X-Men are a group for the people, perhaps it's best they put it to a vote. Then, an info page, and it's an election poster. It's the same one that Marvel used on their site to promote the fan vote for the final member of the team, which I totally forgot about. I I wonder who won. I, I haven't the foggiest idea. Anywho, uh, the new X-Men team will debut at the Hellfire Gala, which we've heard some rumblings about before Exitens got in the way. Not sure exactly when or where that's going to happen. Just uh, I guess we can just keep our fingers crossed and hope sooner than later we, uh, we get this gala and we finally get a team in this book. Now, next episode, we're going to be taking a look at X-Factor, but uh, let's talk about this one. And stop me if you heard this one before, but I'm of two minds when it comes to this issue. I think I've been saying that a lot lately. <laughs> I feel like that's becoming uh, one of the, uh, the X-Labs chestnuts here, where there's a lot to like about this issue, but there's also a lot to maybe not so much be concerned about or worried about, but just... Uh, Kind of just be indifferent toward. Um, I, I ultimately come out of it uh, feeling positive. It's a net positive issue. And I don't know how much of that is because we're getting the illusion of uh, something happening, right? Progression. You know, the uh, a maturation of this story here. It feels like, for the first time, I feel like we're in the next phase of this story. 
You know, we know that Arako coming is going to be a huge thing. Maybe not just for the X-Men, but for the entire Marvel Universe. We're getting millions of new mutants who, uh, I don't know how many of them are crossbred with Amenthi demons, but you got to assume some of them. So, I mean, this is basically like dropping a million Omega or near Omega level mutants on an unwitting planet. And uh, I gotta assume that uh, this is not gonna just slip under the radar. So I'm excited for that. I'm excited for that. But at the same time, I'm a little trepidatious. Let's uh, let's let's talk about it here. Let me let me try to break it down here because I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself. I appreciate this issue in that it it gives us this feeling of progression. Um, I'm not sure how much actual progression we got here, but it felt like we were moving forward. On the other hand, uh, we talk a little bit about seeing patterns where they may or may not exist on this show sometimes, where when you're looking for a pattern, it's going to show up. And I feel like this is very much a pattern indicative of um, the things I don't like about Jonathan Hickman's storytelling. In that, I mean... One of our main takeaways here is that we know uh, some, uh, we know a little bit about the Iraqi version of the Quiet Council in the uh, in the Ring of whatever the hell it was, and we just get these names. You know, I feel like that's something that Hickman does. He just uh, he he pulls out like these sort of cool sounding names, and they'll probably be attached to moderately interesting looking characters, but then that's kind of just it. You know, maybe they'll each have, like, one quirk that'll define them and uh, just kind of make, justify their existence. Just like we saw with the uh, the Iraqi uh, contingent in, uh, in the Festival of Swords there. It's like, we didn't get a whole lot of personality for a lot of these characters. It was just, they were just means to an end. And, uh... I wasn't confident that we'd be seeing any of them again. I mean, that does remain to be seen. I'm, I'm guessing we will be seeing Iska. We will be seeing uh, Bay since she's married to Doug. But for the most part, I feel like those characters were presented to fit into one story. And that was it. And that's what I, I kind of worry, that this is where we're headed with this new Iraqi council. It's just, here's some cool names. And I, and I feel like I've seen that in, in Hickman's Avengers uh, with Ex Nihilo and those people and... It's just not something that inspires a whole lot of confidence uh, in me for this uh, for this direction. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully these characters come and they knock my socks off. But uh, I don't know that I'm holding my breath. Now, we did get some questions answered here. We do know that Arako is on 616 Earth. I mean, that's obvious. That happened in this issue. But in so doing, it also cleared up another question I had about the whereabouts of Apocalypse and Genesis. Because... I don't know if it's just me conflating these names, because we're getting weird names here, like Amenth and uh, Rocco and Okara. I mean, we're getting weird names here. It's hard to keep them straight. Uh, granted, I'm just an idiot reader, but I think eh, I might be wrong, but I think some of the creators are having a, having a little spot of trouble with this as well, because I'm pretty sure we heard that uh, Apocalypse was on Arako and Amenth. Again, I, I could be mistaken. But uh, at least here, we know for a fact that Apocalypse is not on Arako because Arako is on Earth. Instead, he and his uh, blushing bride are on a menth, living among the uh, the creepy demons. So I, I like that we have the answers. That's something that I've been 
asking since uh, since the uh, crossover ended. I wanted to get some firm confirmation on exactly where some of these pieces landed, and it's definitely nice to have a bit of an understanding, uh, if not a complete understanding, at least a bit of an understanding as to where where everything kind of sits at the moment. Um, on a similar subject here, uh, Genesis leaving and going to Amenth opened up her seat on the Iraqi Council, which Iska, we got to assume Iska took that seat. Um, we only really know the uh, the council members or the ring masters, I don't know, <laughs> in the first uh, quadrant there. We know Iska, we know uh, Idol, and we know... Um, uh, Tarn the Uncaring. So let's talk a little bit about them here. Um, first, Iska, uh, which who had a wonderful scene with Xavier and Magneto here. And it's funny because uh, it really shows the naivete and it, it proves Iska's point, uh, referring to Xavier and Magneto as children running a children's, uh, run a, ch- a children running a child's nation, right, or a child's government, just playing, pretending to be world powers because they don't know what they're doing. You know, uh, they really are ill-equipped. They don't have the experience to to run a nation and to broker these deals. And the fact that they thought. Going into this, that okay, we have millions of new mutants, new near omega level mutants who've been half crossbred with demons coming to Earth, and just assuming right away that they're just going to be they're going to be cool with rejoining with Krakoa and you know sitting in the circle and singing Kumbaya. I mean, how pie in the sky is that? I really, really like the way. That was presented because they went there full of good intentions. They brought their little plant, you know, to uh, to, to you know open up as a gateway. And she's just like, "What are you doing? You guys don't know anything." It's really funny because I mean, we can talk about things like integration, just even among among people, right? How hard it is to integrate. Not just outside of cultures, but I mean just even outside of areas of the country you live in. If you come from the northeast United States and you move to the south or the southwest or the west, you may have like a similar belief structure to your next door neighbor. You might have, uh, you might look exactly the same as them. You might exhibit some of the same behaviors, but there's an integration there. You have to, you have to acclimate to your surroundings here. And the fact that Xavier and Magneto just assumed that this entire island, this giant island, cluttered, full of mutants, is just going to be like, okay, we're on Earth now. Let's all be friends. Let's all just acclimate right away. It's pretty funny, and it really speaks to um, not only their inexperience, but just uh, we talked a little bit uh, about the Krakoan ethnocentrism or the mutant ethnocentrism Uh, i think we talked about that during the storm solo where she went into wakanda and how uh how all they see is the mutant they don't see anything else which i don't know if that's intentional i don't know if xavier only seeing mutant is something that we're supposed to notice or if it's just a byproduct of the direction of the story but I think that that's a pretty great statement in um, in how you know people do that. You know, you pay attention to one specific thing and you disregard everything else. So, 
Xavier sees these mutants as just mutants, and all mutants are brothers and sisters, so ipso facto, we're all a family. Uh, to which Iska's like, nope, <laughs> that's not going to work that way. Really, really strong scene. I, I liked it a lot. It, uh, it said so much in so little time, and it was done very subtly, to the point where I'm not even sure if it was intentional, which is great. Great stuff, great writing there. I really, really dug that. Let's talk about Idol. Idol, the precog or the prophet or whatever, the, the, the one who can kind of make predictions. This is going to be an interesting one, perhaps, since, uh, I mean, we, we've been dealing with the fact that Mora does not want Mystique to, or Destiny to come back, which vexes Mystique. And she even kind of makes a snide comment about that here in this issue when Doug uh, brings it to everyone's attention that he got married and he has a wife and she kind of scowled because her wife is uh, is still in the queue, right? She's still buffering. <laughs> they won't let her back yet. So, again, very kind of subtle, right? I mean, to the point where I don't know if it was intentional or not. It might have just been Mystique be having a bad day and just being like, ah, screw you, Doug. You know, but we can also take it as a very subtle jab, and or, or at least a uh, a reference to her uh, frustration, which really good subtle writing. I really dug that. So we can't have destiny, but the Iraqis have Idol, who has similar powers to that of destiny. So how's that going to work? Is that going to be a bone of contention between the two islands? Is is Mora going to have... Is she going to try to get someone to take Idol out? Um, I think this could lead to a lot of very, very interesting things, and I, I hope it does. So I'm sure we're going to be talking about this one a lot more as we move forward here, because, uh, like I said, you see patterns where you want to, and I, uh, I want to, so I might. Uh, let's talk about Tarn, the uncaring here. Uh... Now, Tarn is interesting for a lot of reasons. First, it's just an interesting character. Second, you got the Locust Vile, who are just absolute horrors. Third, and most important, Tarn knows what happened to the Hellions. And he may know that Mr. Sinister uh, had uh, sent his, you know, DNA mosquitoes out to uh, take some Amenthi uh, samples back during uh, Exitens here. Of course, Sinister is playing coy. He... Murdered his team when they when they came back through the portal, and so they wouldn't know. Uh, since you know, upon resurrection, they wouldn't know what he had, uh, what his designs were for the trip. But here we have Tarn, who knows. So this could be very interesting as well. Um, we don't know quite how much Tarn knows, but he might know just enough to make Sinister have a. Uh, Make them a little uncomfortable and make people uh, raise their eyebrows more than they usually do when, when Sinister is about. So I'm happy about all that stuff. I The rest of the uh, Iraqi council eh, will just uh, reserve judgment. I guess that's probably the smart thing to do since uh, we don't know anything about them. Just first blush, it just sounds like some very, very Hickman-y ideas. <laughs> and uh, and I, I know I've referenced this a time or two before, but... Um, I think my main concern here is just how little this feels like an X-Men story. I think that's kind of where I'm getting, you know, it's like the, the my belt loop is getting stuck on that, and I can't move past it. 
Um, and I know I've mentioned this before, but uh, I remember when the DC Rebirth started and uh, rumors were were flying that uh, Hickman was going to come and revitalize and repair and rescue the Legion of Superheroes, right? Never came to pass. I also remember, uh, not too terribly long ago, when they mentioned that the Eternals were going to be getting a movie for whatever reason, because that's a boring concept. But I remember Hickman was attached to that, at least in the rumor sense, right? His name was tossed around or bandied around with other names that would be involved in the Eternal story here. And I wonder how much truth there is to either of those, because these concepts that we're getting here feel like they'd be more at home in a Legion book or an Eternals book rather than an X-Men book. So... I mean, there's nothing wrong with reusing your ideas or repurposing ideas, but it just doesn't feel X-Men-y to me. And like I said, my belt loop's getting stuck on that. You know, I'm trying to make my way through this uh, this little labyrinth here, and I'm stuck. <laughs> so it, it hampers my ability to just let go and enjoy for uh, for what things are worth here. Of course, if I were a better-adjusted human being, I would... Uh, I'd probably enjoy this far more than than I do. I wouldn't have all these kind of worries percolating in the back of my head here. But overall, overall, I'll stop talking. (laughs) I enjoyed the issue. Uh, I probably don't even need to say that Phil Noto is Phil Noto and is fantastic. Um, Just a a fine issue. We finally feel... It finally feels like we're here in the reign of X. You know, it feels like we have taken that step forward and we are in, I don't know if this is the second third of the story or the second quarter of the of Hickman's overarching story for the X-Men, but uh, it feels like we're no longer in the dawn of X. The fact that we're still kind of world building is maybe not so much troubling, but I mean, get on with it. <laughs> but... Uh, it does feel like we're getting somewhere. So I will I will stop repeating myself and babbling at this point and just tie it off here. And we will hop into the mailbag here. It's, it's going to be brief. Uh, we have one message from Damien. He's talking about Marauders number 16. He says, Marauders is by far my favorite current X-book, but I really had problems with this issue. The humorous way that the attack on Shaw is presented was in a is in pretty bad taste, but I can accept a bit of black humor. Rather, it was the end of the issue that made me uncomfortable. The scene with Shaw being wheeled into the Quiet Council felt really wrong. I do not believe that Kitty and Storm would do that, and I do not believe that in 2021, disability should be used as a punchline. Now, I agree. I definitely agree. And issue 16 of Marauders... Um, it was an uncomfortable read. I think uh, that's probably putting it lightly. I, re- I compared it to the, the movie Audition, uh, Maraudition, where uh, Shaw was uh, put through the ring. And I mean, it's strange that, yeah, I mean, Shaw is a ruthless individual who's done horrible things and would continue to do horrible things. But seeing him in this position, as Damien put it here, it was it, there was humor to it. It was definitely black humor, black comedy. But it was also very uncomfortable. It was, uh, you know, we, we talk about characters acting out of character. And it, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around Kitty or Storm being a party to that. I mean, Lockheed is a, is a dragon. He could do whatever. Uh, and Emma, uh, we've seen Emma do things far worse than this. 
And we know Emma and Shaw have a very complicated and very dark uh, relationship. So, I mean, all bets are off here. But it was a very disconcerting story from, from beginning to end. Um, of course, we can accept things for what they are, but it was uh, it was uncomfortable. And it made me wonder how... You, you know me, I always talk about how do we walk this back? You know, we play it forward, but how do we walk it back? And this is one of those scenes where... You know, my my sense was pinging. It's like, okay, how do we how do we write ourselves out of this? How do we walk this one back? Can we walk this one back? And I'm not sure. I'm honestly not sure we can here. And the fact that we use uh, Shaw in his uh, you know wheelchair state as the punchline, it's in poor taste. It's in it's in poor taste here. I'm gonna let uh, I'm gonna continue with Damien's um, Damien's message here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to this in just a bit. Damien continues. My husband is in a wheelchair is a wheelchair user, as are many of our friends, and maybe I'm too into the disability rights community to let it pass. But I genuine genuinely think this lets down the story. Marauders is better than that. Now that I was unaware of, and um, this is another indictment on me and uh, the way I, the way I look at this. And I mean, I just mentioned it a minute ago. I get so wrapped up in the comicsness of it, right? I I get wrapped around the axle, wondering how how are we going to fix Kitty? How are we going to fix Storm? Or I totally disregard the real life um, parallels and how this could be received by someone who this hits, you know, closer to home. So I definitely want to thank you for kind of opening my eyes to that because it's not something I ever really think about and I try to be better about that than than I, you know, just than just being a comic guy who worries about comic things here. But you're completely right. Um the ending despite the fact that I thought the entire issue, the entire story was a little bit of a difficult read here, the ending Definitely lets down everything that came before. Like I said, we could, ex- like you said, actually, we could accept a lot of the things as just dark, dark humor, dark comedy. The ending is, it's a letdown for sure. Um, Damien continues. This came up again last night when we were zooming with a friend. She's a wheelchair user and also a comics fan. And via a conversation about modern movies being too long, we ended up talking about superhero movies. She recommended Birds of Prey, but mentioned that they had removed the most interesting character in Oracle, and how annoyed she was when the New 52 cured her. We ended up briefly discussing how bad comics are at disability, and it really underlined how flippantly disability is treated in general. The fact that I had that conversation the same day I reread this issue of Marauders really crystallized my objections to this issue. I see that WizKid is in Swords, so maybe we're going to get some better representation. Fingers crossed. Well, yes, there's a lot to take apart in that statement there. I I hate going back to just being, you know, a comics guy complaining about comics things. But uh, I was definitely of the the same mind when the New 52 cured Oracle here. I didn't understand the reasoning for it. Especially during, you know, the day and age where comics are trying to be at least they're claiming to, to try to be more representative of, of a diverse readership. Just, uh, you know, the world outside your window, everybody, everybody is represented. 
And here, you take the most iconic wheelchair user in comics out of the wheelchair. I, I don't, I don't get that. Um, and the, and I and I understand that the character of Batgirl is. It's not a great character, but it's iconic, as iconic as a Bat character can be. But for so much of her history here, and this is something I think is lost on a lot of of current year or current era fans here, she was kind of a jokey character. She really didn't do a whole heck of a lot. She didn't, you know, her her reputation uh, succeeded her. <laughs> Right? It was only after she was not in the costume anymore that people were like, "Oh man, where's Batgirl? Oh, Batgirl was great." It's like, no, she wasn't. <laughs> she really, she really wasn't. As Oracle, she became the mo- one of the most vital characters in the entire DC universe. One of the most important characters in the DC universe. One of the most skillful characters in the DC universe. The JLA deferred to her. Batman deferred to her. She was so important. And it's, and I mean, you'd want to talk about representation. I think Barbara Gordon as Oracle, showing that you could be a hero without having to, you know, go punch and kick and, and swing from buildings. You could be a hero. You could be just as important to a story as Superman, you know? And the fact that they, they took her out, I just don't see who that serves. She went from being like the straw that stirred the drink to being featured in like the seventh highest selling bat book that came out in a given month. It, it just really didn't help anybody here. And uh, I, I could totally see um, her being cured as uh, hitting a little close to home for, uh, for a contingent of the fandom. Um, and, and I mean, that's not something I ever thought about before. And I, I apologize and I want to thank you for... Helping me to see it that way Because when I look at it, again I look at it as a comic thing And it's like, wow, we we had a really good character there And now she's just different You know, now she's, you know, back in the Bat costume And not nearly as important to the universe at large here But, again, I'm not drawing parallels to any real-life stuff It's just me being a, uh, what do they call us? Entitled, petulant uh, fan baby Or whatever they're Calling us nowadays But uh, no, I want to thank you so much For such a such a personal message And uh, really just opening my eyes to something And, and you're doing this a lot to me, Damien and, and it means the world to me That you're so willing to share And uh, I just hope my responses aren't too uh, off-putting or horrendous Or just cringy I, I really hope not But that, my friends, is where we're going to tie a bow in the mailbag for today If anybody out there would like to be a part of the mailbag, talk about anything you'd like to talk about, please feel free to write in. You can reach me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com for just the xlapsed stuff. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, and uh, we've had a few new members, so thank you. So much for uh, joining in on, uh, you know, the, the one thing I post every day. I'll try to get better about that. Um, and if you want to hear hundreds, if not thousands of hours of comics-related podcasts, check out chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I probably don't have to tell you all this, but it's on, like, iTunes, Stitcher, 
Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, all the places, and probably one of the places that you're hearing my voice on right this very minute. Uh, we're on all noise aggregates, so uh, you could find us wherever. Uh, on that same subject here, if you do like the show or at least appreciate the effort that goes behind it every single day, please do me a favor and spread the word. Tell folks who you think might dig it to uh, check it out, because it's a thing that's here, and it's always here for you. So I would very much appreciate it. Uh, but that is where we will leave it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 148 of X Lapsed. That milestone is quick approaching, ain't it? Uh, now, today, we've got a very special book. It's Hellions Day, and we are going to be taking a look at Hellions, issue number 8. Now, this had a March 2021 cover date. The story is called The Grinning Neonate. Hmm. Written by Zeb Wells, with art by Steven Segovia, colors by David Curiel, letters VCs Ariana Marr, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Amaro Basso White Sobolski, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale January 6th of 2021. Now, as is customary, we open with our mostly blank quote page. Again, it's from Nightcrawler. And you know... When Way of X was announced, I was a little bit nervous that it was going to be replacing Hellions, um, especially since this is, like, really the only book where we can count on getting at least a few words out of Nightcrawler. He usually just hangs out in the background and uh, smiles. Uh, looks, thankfully, like that's not the case, though. Hellions doesn't appear to be going anywhere. So we pick up right where we left off last issue. The Hellions are stood before Cameron Hodge and his right bots. And here Hodge talks a lot... Uh, he mentions being gifted with eternal life, to which Havoc reminds him that that gift was given to him by a crazy demon. This goes way back to uh, the first volume of X-Factor, back in the long ago. 
Wildchild and Nanny decide not to stick around for the Gospel of Hodge, and instead they blow right by in search of Nanny's ship. Undeterred but a bit annoyed, Hodge continues to pontificate. And I almost feel like he's might be getting kind of, sort of, conflated with uh, Reverend Stryker here a little bit. I mean, it's very, very churchy, and even Grey Crow makes a mention of how, uh, how odd it is for uh, this to be, you know, quite so um, pious. Uh, from here, double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred, uh, the characters we're going to be paying attention to are Havoc, Orphan Maker, despite not showing up in the issue, Nanny, Wildchild, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, Sinister, and Hodge. I don't don't think Sinister shows up here either, but uh, what do you want to do? Back to comics, and as you might imagine, it's time to fight. Now, the Hellions stand their ground, except for Empath, who makes like a tree. Which, I mean, dude's got powers having to do with the mind and emotion, so... When you're faced off against robots with machine guns, I think I'd be running too. Uh, and this is like a cartoonishly funny bit, though. Uh, the only thing missing is like a wake of dust where he'd been standing. It's like, yoink, he's gone. Uh, the right bots, which, as I was typing up these notes, I kept typing them as the right boys, um, they get the upper hand here pretty quick. Now, one has Psylocke in his crosshairs, about to take her out at point-blank range, range when uh, he stops to rescan her. And the robot's confused. Uh, it says that uh, Quanan is not a mutant. Hmm. She does fall within the margin of error, though, and so it defers to Hodge for how it should proceed. Hodge naturally wants her killed. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, this robotic deduction here uh, toward the end of the episode, because uh, there's a couple of different ways we can approach this, so we will look at that. Now, luckily... The time the robot wasted talking to Hodge was enough time for Grey Crow to recover and blast it to bits. Now we wind up with our Hellions A-team and Havoc, Psylocke, and Grey Crow back to back to back as they're surrounded by Wrightbots. The scene shifts into the East Hangar where Wildchild and Nanny bust in and make embarrassingly short work of a couple more Wrightbots. They climb on board the Nanny, bo- the nanny ship here, uh, at which time Nanny is a bit surprised at something she's found. More on that in just a little bit. Back outside, uh, Stryker or Hodge or whoever this is, is uh, still pontificating. Uh, His right bots have nabbed the fleeing empath and they dump him on the ground before their leader. Empath here decides to swing for the fences before he gets offed, and so he attempts to get into Hodge's mind. Only to find that Hodge doesn't have a mind. You see, he's a robot as well. Now, as he's scanning, a right bot cracks the holy hell out of him, putting him down, likely for good. We'll find out at the end of the issue if he survives or not. Uh, the right bots also, however, decide to scan Hodge, and just as Empath suggested, they deduce that he is, in fact, a robot. Hodge gets blasted by a bot, revealing him to be like a Terminator 2-looking machine man. He then explodes. Um, a right bot then looks at the Hellions and delivers one of the lines of the book. The robot says, Thank you, mutant scum. Which, I mean, that's funny. Uh, back inside, Nanny starts up her ship. Wildchild asks what kept her, but she doesn't say anything about what, what it is that she discovered. Like I said, we are going to find out soon enough. Wildchild then suggests that uh, Amenth probably isn't done with either of them. 
to which Nanny agrees. You know, of course, this is a reference to the fact that they both died in a month and have been resurrected since, and uh, they're having weird feelings or, I guess, impulses that uh, the Amenthi demons, they're, they're going to be paying visits. Outside, Empath dies again. Um, he and Quentin Choir should really start keeping score or something. Uh, meanwhile, Havoc chats up a right bot, and it would appear as though the robots are starting to come around to the mutant scum. It even adjusts the value of mutant equals enemy to mutant equals friend. And then they deliver another very, very funny line here. We are family, mutant scum. It's a uh, really funny. Alex's re- reaction here is also, like, perfect. It's great. And, you know, we talk a lot about how hard it is for comics to have comic timing, but time and again, this book absolutely nails it, and this is no exception. Now, we shift somewhere inside the facility where Psylocke is being psy-linked to Magneto, who gives them a final order for this mission. And that final order is... Kill all the robots. You see, Hodge's right bots are infected with the techno-organic virus, which allows them the ability to think and evolve. And, I mean, we did just see some of that evolution in how they changed their stance on the mutant scum, right? From enemy to friend. But we gotta remember Mora's future lives, where it's uh, the post-humans and the machines who ultimately win. So this is kind of a nip-it-in-the-bud sort of situation. Um... The law is here that no AI may flourish under the Quiet Council's watch. Grey Crow comes in at the tail end of Quinan's chat with Magneto, and they share a conversation regarding maybe the morality of what they've been tasked with doing. Now, Psylocke has been connected to a cloud server where she can procure a virus which will wipe out all the AI. Grey Crow offers, uh, you know, uh, who says chivalry's dead here? He offers to push the button, right? This way, it might assuage Quinan of any further guilt. She assures him that that is not a problem at this juncture and pushes the button herself. Back outside, Havoc is still chatting with a bot who actually refers to him as, quote, Friend Havoc. And and our man Alex is kind of taken aback by this. Unfortunately, it's a short-lived celebration because just then the virus hits and the robots perish. Now, the final words for the one that Havoc had been chatting with say, false value, mutant equals friend. So they were wrong all along, and this really, really gets to Alex. Now, we wrap up this issue with Nanny making a journal entry, which is uh, turns out to be narrating over this final scene. Gotta say, this is much better than just doing it as an info page, which I feel would be the go-to for many of these books. Now, Nanny mentions how upset Alex is about everything that went down, and how she might just have something that can make him smile again. But she doesn't trust him enough to show him. She then sneaks into another part of the ship where we see what she found stowed away when she boarded, and it's a it's baby Yoda. No, no, it's it's a baby right bot. It's kind of cute, and uh, I think this is going to be kind of interesting. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. Uh, we actually close out the issue with an info page all about the Hesoid Protocol. Hesiod, Hesiod. Maybe it's Hesiod. I didn't know what Hesiod was or is, so uh, I had to look it up. Hesiod was a Greek poet born in 750 BC 
whose work we might be tangentially familiar with as he was the earliest as his was the earliest mention of Pandora's box which is fitting now the hesiod protocol is the Krakoan protocol which states that all ai's got to go so that's where we leave it next episode is the final juggernaut editing so we will wrap up the Nisiei Sagarni Juggernaut miniseries next time. But uh, let's talk about this one, because uh, I think we got some pretty interesting things to cover here. I do want to start by saying this Zeb Wells character can really break your heart, can he? I mean, here he is making us kind of feel bad for racist robots. <laughs> I mean, I actually felt like we lost something when they were taken out. How weird is that? Uh, Havoc's reaction to this was pretty amazing as well. And I'm not sure how much more this poor guy can take before he actually snaps. You know, he, he's been put on this team. And we saw him chatting with Emma last episode, or last issue of Hellions, where it was uh, we heard that there was problems with Havoc's mind, right? Here it almost feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy, You know, even if there was nothing wrong with Havoc's mind, by the end of this experience, there's gonna be. I mean, he's lost Madeline, he's got this robot who's sort of kind of his friend for a minute. It's uh, it's pretty wild, right? Let's keep on that track here, the whole no AI may flourish, right? We know why that's gotta be. We know what Mora saw. And Magneto and Xavier also know what Morris saw, so it stands to reason they'd be quite wary of any techno-organic uprisings. Though, part of me wonders why they wouldn't be a little bit more proactive about this. You know, I mean, the Hellions didn't come here to wipe out the AI, right? They came here in order to get Nanny's ship so that she could craft a new armor for Orphan Maker before he's resurrected. They kind of just lucked into the fight with the Hodgebot and the right... I mean, I'm not sure why this major theme of Hoxpox is only being stumbled upon by accident rather than being an ongoing thing. You'd figure, like, Xavier and Magneto would be rooting out AI or potential AI uprisings here to nip them in the bud before they can become a thing, before they gather any steam. Here, it was just luck. It was happenstance that they that they happened across these right bots. Kind of weird, right? Um, and it makes you wonder, like, what exactly constitutes this AI that uh, that may flourish? You know, are we going to be worrying about characters like Vision? You know, are we going to be worrying about uh, X-51? I mean, I don't know. I think that could be a slippery slope. I kind of hope not, because I really don't want this to be a huge Marvel thing, but... Uh, What are you going to do? We'll have to see when we get there, if we get there. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about No AI May Flourish here. Um, This time, let's talk about Apoth. We've been talking a little bit more about Apoth lately. I didn't know that we'd ever, ever talk about Apoth again. But uh, Now, we know that Quinan's daughter is, is currently in the form of Data, right? And that Sinister has her and Apoth kind of squirreled away. This is very, very interesting because it shows us a bit more about why Psylocke is quite as subservient to him as she is, right? It's not that just that he's doing her a favor. I think up to this point we thought that, okay, he's just doing her a favor. 
It's more than that. It's that they're actively going against one of the Quiet Council's protocols here. And we got to assume that if the, if the QC were to find out about this, they probably wouldn't be all that happy. Now, this gives us a little bit more insight as to why Psylocke was so morally torn when it came to uploading the virus. Likely because that's the exact way her daughter, in her current form, would be taken out. This is really well done. Very, very subtle. You know, this was not beating us over the head with anything. It was just, it was just hesitation. And then, uh, I mean, there was a question here of Grey Crows, where he's like, okay, well, do we think of these AI as being alive? And Quinan says, well, yeah, I have to think that way. Doesn't beat us over the head with it, but we, you know, those of us who've been following along since Fallen Angels and into, into the, uh, you know, Quinan sinister scenes we've had in this book, we kind of know what she's talking about. And it really, really makes, really, really makes the scene work. And I mean, I can't believe that the horrid and dull takeaway that we got from Fallen Angels uh, has been made into such a compelling piece of business in this book. So uh, this is a, a pleasant surprise. Now let's stick with Psylocke here. Something that we might have as a takeaway was when that right bot was unclear on whether or not she was actually a mutant. To which I guess there are a couple of ways for us to look at that, right? Um, first, I mean... The obvious one, Psylocke isn't a mutant. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that. Second, um, maybe it was just because there's very little difference between human and mutant, thus the robot was confused. Now, I think there's plenty of meat on both those bones, but, uh, I mean, the first one here, I'm not even sure how to begin theorizing that Quanan is somehow not a mutant. I mean, she once died of the legacy virus, and she can pass through Kokroan gateways, so I think if we're unmutantifying her, it's going to be a sticky, sticky mess, right? This isn't Franklin Richards, right? This is something a little bit stickier. So I guess we can assume that the robot was surprised at how little the difference in humans and mutants actually was, which probably led to the ease in which they uploaded or updated their records to list the mutant scum as friend rather than enemy. What else we got here? We got... Uh... Nanny and uh, Wild Child acting a little bit out of character, right? Uh, but with a purpose. With a purpose. They've been changed from their uh, their deaths on a month here. And I can't believe it, but we're actually getting a uh, potential continuation of the Amenth storyline, and I'm not absolutely dreading it. Uh, I have all the faith in the world that uh, Zeb Wells and company can uh, make some lemonade out of this uh, overlong and bloated storyline that we... Uh, just finished up in a month or with a month or versus a month or whatever it is. Um, also, we have this uh, little AI baby, which uh, I wonder what that's going to be all about. That's going to be very interesting to follow along here. Uh, I just uh, I'm seeing this is the third member of our uh, of our little mascot troop here. We get Jeff the Land Shark, we get uh, Amazing Baby, and now we have the little. Uh, Little smiley bot. So we'll uh, have our have ourselves a uh, a trio of silly little uh, mascots here that we can all fall in love with. So looking forward to seeing where this is going. Um, the work that's being done here with Alex, as I mentioned during the synopsis, it's really really cool. Uh, we got this idea where he's mentally broken, but even if he weren't. The things he's going through as part of this team is breaking him mentally. So it's uh, 
really well done. Really well done. I'm glad that this book is in our lives here, and uh, I'm, as always, looking forward to the next one. I hope you are as well, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the issue. And with that, uh, let's hop into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Juggernaut number four. He says, I'm going to start by thanking both you and Evan for saying nice things about me in the feedback. I love the fact that we all get different things from reading the same comics. It's why I'm so keen to ensure that I read the comic before I listen to you. I want to notice my response and compare it to yours. Thank you for your sensitive response to my Fantastic Four rant. I would agree with you. I would also agree with you that they ruined the, the 12 storyline, but it's not the first time Marvel's done that. Well, like I said uh, during that discussion here, it means the world to me that uh, that people engage in the uh, in the in our little mailbag here, and uh, sometimes we share personal things about our lives, and it, yeah, it really means a lot that uh, folks would do that here. It's not something I, I really expected, and uh, the fact that we are able to talk about this and we are. This kind of you know silly little book club book club family, easy for me to say. Uh, it really uh, it really does me a lot of good, a lot of good. Um, now Damien continues on to Juggernaut. I'm really enjoying this series. It's relatively simple as it's just Juggernaut defeating an opponent and moving on to the next foe, but it's really well done. I'm loving the artwork too. I've always liked Ron Garney, but I swear he's getting better issue by issue. And that's true here. This is a very different Ron Garney than we saw back, you know, even back turn of the century Uncanny X-Men. This is, uh, and he was great then. He, he, I mean, he was no slouch back then, but now it's, it's, I don't know, I think, I feel like he's finding his style here. And it is a style that absolutely serves the uh, story that uh, Nicias is telling here with Juggernaut. As you said, it is relatively simple. It is um, very basic, you know, comics 101 storytelling here. You beat the foe, you move to the next. But it's just, it's very, very well done. It's very fun, it's engaging, and it's different enough from the uh, the headier Hawks, Pox, Docs, Rock, Socks books where it's almost refreshing, you know, that it's just, okay, this is just a comic book, and it's being a comic book, and it's a lot of fun. Now, Damien continues, My only complaint is why use Arnim Zola if you're not following the Kirby design? I genuinely think the character is harmed by a more realistic redesign. I agree. I definitely agree with that. Um, I mean, Arnim Zola, no matter how you slice it, it's a silly-looking character. But as, you know, a comic book, it uh, you know, the Kirby design probably works best with the actual physical really weird face in the stomach rather than just a uh, computer screen here, which in and of itself almost feels like a throwback to like 90s or turn of the century comics where, you know, I think a lot of us decided we were too cool for that kind of stuff. And we were getting like these streamlined redesigns. I mean, the X-Men themselves took to several years of not wearing costumes. They were just in like black leather. You know, I think... When I look at the Arnim Zola redesign, it looks, it doesn't look modern, you know? I mean, it looks modernized, but dated. Like, definitely a few fashion cycles ago. Like, like remember when, like, the Vulture changes outfit and the Scorpion changes outfit? And it's like, you look at them and it's like, ugh, <laughs> what is that? Um, and even back in the day, we looked at them like, ugh, you know, what is that? But I wonder if that's kind of... I, I don't think this is intentional. I don't think it's an intentional commentary on on things here. But uh, 
that's that was my takeaway from it. And it's becoming more and more my takeaway the more I think about it. It just feels like a very uh, outdated attempt at modernization, which may have been the whole point overall. I don't know. But uh, Damien wraps up with, anyway, until the big bad is revealed to be the owl, make my next lapsed. And uh, I probably don't need to explain that reference, do I? Probably not. But I, I do wonder how uh, how the current year X-Books would go if the owl and Genesis had just uh, left... To raise demons on a menth That could have been very, very interesting But uh, <laughs> I want to thank you so much For uh, sharing your thoughts there on the Juggernaut And also the wonderful feedback here So thank you, Damien Next up, we're going to talk to Evan Who is talking about Sword, number one Now he says, I'd been looking forward to this title I understand your issues with Ewing Which I wasn't initially familiar with And uh, I've kind of beat around the bush about that <laughs> I, uh, I, I mean, I've I've outright said what my problem was with Ewing in as far as how he conducts himself or refuses to conduct himself on social media here, but I never really I never really expressed why it bothered me quite as much as it did uh, outside of, you know, just the very basic human decency and respecting your fans sort of thing. I, I had a problem with this because it kind of hit me a little close to home uh, through projection, pure projection, because, I mean, I haven't been in the, the same position he's been in. But the way I look at it isn't so much as a fan. I try not to engage with any creators online because I want to stay a fan. You know, I like being a fan. I don't want to be an insider. I don't want to be chummy with Al Ewing or Jonathan Hickman or Teeny Howard or anybody. I want to just enjoy what they write. I've long said that we're getting a little too close to these uh, to these creators here, and it's uh, what is that? Uh, familiarity breeds contempt. So I, I try to not have any contempt. But the case with Ewing and his use of uh, Twitter blockchains to block people he's never had any contact with simply because of maybe somebody they follow, or maybe somebody whose uh, whose tweet they chose to like or share. That hit me as a content creator. And uh, don't get me wrong, I am a content creator and also a struggling content creator. I've been at this every single day for over five years, and I don't have the Marvel machine behind me. And I'm, I mean, I'm basically a vestigial limb of the X-Men podcasting community. <laughs> I don't know that I matter all that much. So, I mean, there isn't much impetus for people to follow and engage with me, but... I'm all about finding the one, right? Just finding the one new listener every once in a while, someone who will really enjoy what it is that we do here and what what it is that we discuss here. And I want that person, say someone just stumbles across X-Lapsed or even a Cosmic Treadmill or a Weird Comics History, and they like the cut of my jib, you know, and they want to engage or they want to listen, and then they figure, oh, hey, at the end of the episode, he said he's on Twitter at Ace Comics, so maybe I'll check him out. And then I think, like, what would happen if they did? They looked me up, and they found out that I blocked them. Without ever talking to them, without ever knowing them. This is a person, uh, you know, a hypothetical person, who wants to engage with me because of the content I create. And for me to be so disrespectful as to just block them outright, maybe because they follow someone that I find inconvenient, or maybe they shared an idea that uh, was firmly outside my echo chamber. That would bother me. That that does bother me. And that's why 
when Ewing kind of hit it big with the Immortal Hulk and all the news was about the fact that people wanted to follow him because he works for Marvel, only to find out that they couldn't. And it's someone they, they never talked to, never had a crossword with. It strikes me as wildly disrespectful. And um, it's hard for me. And, I mean, I like his writing. I mean, that's kind of like the weirdest part of all. I wanted to hate sword number one. I wanted to rip it to shreds. I liked it. It is totally outside my wheelhouse, but I liked it. So Ewing is a talented guy. But I can't say it doesn't bother me that I'm uh, that I'm you know supporting him with my with my I'm you know I'm voting with my wallet for someone who uh, may not may not even pee on me if I was on fire, <laughs> you know it's it gets under my skin. So that is uh, well, I guess that's the the long the long scenic route for me to explain my issues with Ewing here, but. Evan continues. He won me over a few years back when Mighty Avengers became roughly the 873rd ongoing Avengers book, with a cast of characters who, outside of the superior Spider-Man and Luke Cage, held very little interest for me. Reading the trades through the library, I was hooked. I hunted down the back issues and started buying the series when it was relaunched less than two years later as Captain America and the Mighty Avengers. He split the cast after Secret Wars between New Avengers, which featured a lot of, the char- a lot of that character work and humor that you saw in Sword plus Squirrel Girl, and Ultimates, which featured a lot of that high-concept, make-your-head-hurt stuff that you saw in Sword. Well, this is kind of why I don't know a whole lot about Mr. Ewing here. That was during my... My ex and Marvel hiatus, I missed out on a lot of that. So he was one of the names that I'd heard a bit about while I was away. And unfortunately, I mean, as as our, you know, vaunted comics presses want to do, uh, all I heard was the sensationalized stuff like, hey, uh, if if you happen to follow Ethan Van Skyver, he's going to block you. <laughs> That's all I really knew. I knew he was on various projects, and I, I probably would have been able to assume he was on an Avengers book since uh, I believe everybody was on one of those 873 Avengers books. But uh, it, it's good to hear that uh, this sword book is very much in the style of, uh, of his earlier work because I, you know, I kind of dug this sword stuff. So uh, if this is the pattern of behavior that he has um, established as a storyteller, then uh, I am... Not quite as pessimistic as I was about Sword uh, a few weeks ago. Now, Evan wraps up with, Like you, I felt a little mixed on Sword number one, but I leaned positive. I have no clue what that triangle thing is, but if they explain it in the first arc, or at least acknowledge the re- that the reader doesn't know, I think I'll be okay with it. And what Evan's talking about there is uh, the, whole, the whole issue of Sword was based around a mission that this group called The Six was going to go on. We don't know exactly why they're doing it. That's, you know, that's still not revealed. But what they do is they they kind of just go into this ethereal place and they pull relics of some sort here. I mean, it's been it's been like a week since I read it and I've read a lot since then, so I don't really remember all of it. But uh what happened was uh Manifold came back and he's got this uh just this shape, this item. <laughs> we don't know what it is. But uh, like Evan, I agree. If they explain what it is in this first story arc, or at least assuage our doubts and reveal that we shouldn't know what it is, because when I see something like that and I don't know what it is, I automatically think that I just missed something. And um, if we find out that we didn't miss anything and we maybe even find out what it was, that's, that's all the better. 
But uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts on uh, that potentially challenging issue, and also for facilitating me sharing my uh, my Ewing woes. Next, we're going to wrap up with Andrew Franklin, who's talking about X Factor number five. He says, first, let me say that I agree with your rankings of the Wave 2 number 5s, and I won't be surprised if the number 6s are in the same order, X-Factor getting the 2 spot over Cable solely because it's not an X of Swords crossover. And yeah, I think that's uh, probably about where we are, and I think I probably forgot to do our power rankings for the number 6s, didn't I? Eh, well, maybe we'll do that next episode if I, uh, if I remember. <laughs> um, now, uh, Andrew continues. Now, because I can't organically fit this anywhere else, I was chatting at my local comic shop with one of the owners. We were talking about the X-Men. When I brought up Cable and how it's surprisingly very good, he told me that that surprised him because it's their lowest-selling X-Book by far. Which I can kind of understand, since I, and you, and I assume many others, dismissed it out of hand before even reading it. Just something I thought was interesting, and now I think I need to vote with my dollars and start buying cable and X-Factor while I'm at it. That's a great bit of information here, and believe it or not, you inspired the next segment that we're going to take a look at here after I'm done with the mailbag. Because uh, when you say something like that, and just getting like an anecdotal piece of information from a comic shop, I find that so helpful because... We get, we get very broad information from the comics news and from the industry and the companies themselves. Where, I mean, a book that was released yesterday that you can still find dozens of copies of at every single store, we'll get a news item saying, hey, it's going to a second print. And you stop and you think, why? Why is this book going to second print when I can go to the store and buy 500 copies of the first print right now? We get very broad information. So it's when we talk to our local comic shop owner that we can actually get some actual boots-on-the-ground information and feedback. And we can analyze that feedback and understand, maybe get a maybe get a better measure of the health of the industry here without any kind of spin from people whose livelihoods def- depend on the sellability of the books that Marvel, DC, and the independents are Absolutely cramming onto their shelves each and every week here And you mentioned Cable being the lowest selling one at this shop And we're going to actually take a look at that after we're done with the mailbag here We're going to take a look at the sales Because I haven't looked at the sales in years So this is going to be a very interesting little bit here But I think you're 100% right Had I not been a completionist And had I not been doing a program, an all-inclusive program there's absolutely no way I'd have bought Cable. None, you know? Then again, I wouldn't have bought Hellions either. You know, I, I wouldn't have bought Marauders. It's, you know, we miss out on things like that. So it's totally understandable why some of these books might be lagging in the sales department. And we're going to see just how far they're lagging uh, in just a little bit. Now, Andrew continues. I thoroughly enjoyed this issue of X-Factor, but that's probably why I don't have much to say about it. That's true. There's a warmness to this book that I can only contrast with the X-Men flagship book, which I find very cold and sterile. I finished the issue feeling very satisfied with what I had read. It was nice to have a quiet issue reconnecting with our cast after what feels like a very, very long time since we last saw them. While some of Leo Williams's millennial dialogue irks me, that's really just a me problem. Well, that's an us problem, but yes, your point is well taken. 
Uh, Andrew continues. I do think she's a very good writer, and it may and she makes these characters feel real. It was nice just reading our characters interact without too much plot getting in the way. And I agree, a hundred percent. Your first point about X-Men feeling very, very sterile and cold. Totally true. Totally true. It it's almost like a recitation of of events rather than a story. When we get X-Men, it's like it's the term paper. You know, it's not a narrative, it's a term paper. And, uh, and, and I mean, sometimes when you read a term paper, it could be interesting, but usually the most interesting part of the citation, so you can go back and check things. X-Men doesn't bother with that. So it's uh, just a dry and, as you put it, a cold and almost aloof uh, recitation of events. Contrast that with several of, the, of other books in the line, including and especially X-Factor in this situation, there is a warmth there. There's heart. There's just... This book feels very lived in. You know, this isn't the term paper. This isn't a report. This is a story featuring characters who were, were fallen for because they're really, really well done. The millennial stuff is very annoying, but that's just comics right now, unfortunately. I, I, hate, the, I hate the whole it is what it is sort of non-response, but, I mean, that's all I can really say. It is what it is. I wish it wasn't there. I'd enjoy the book a lot more if it wasn't there, but I'm enjoying the book anyway. So it's it's an us problem, but uh, and I don't see it going anywhere. I mentioned how strange it was uh, that this X-Factor book, despite being very millennial, very current year, is still somehow one of the more traditional books that we get on the shelves these days with... Very classic X-Men storytelling, and um, just the way the characters interact, it all feels very, very classic and traditional, and can't not love it. Andrew continues, Two things that stuck out to me from this issue were Adam X and the anonymous email info page. Now, I don't care about Adam X, but I thought it was a bit icky that he'd be willing to shoot someone live on stream. I get that it was all part of the murky plan to get Windancer out of the mojo world, but he didn't seem to be too broken up over shooting this girl in the head for his audience. I can accept Wolverine killing Mora to reset reality. I can even accept someone like Wolverine or Domino giving someone a mercy killing if they were dying slowly of injuries. This, however, felt different. It felt more callous. Maybe I'm overthinking it. I don't think you are. I don't think you are, because this was... um. You know, this is... I, I felt very conflicted about that, that story beat, too. First, because, I mean, it's Adam X, and I think when we see Adam X, we're supposed to just go, ha, 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 90s. You know, we're not supposed to think of him as a character. We're supposed to think of him as, you know, Dan Cortese, the MTV sports guy, you know, with his backwards cap and uh, just being radical. And I think that's just supposed to be what, what we think, uh, and so anything he does is kind of predicated in uh, extreme 90s-ness and things that were really too smart for and too cool for in current year. I still didn't like the fact that he was okay with killing Windancer. I mean, he did offer her a way out. He did offer workarounds to kind of fool the cameras. But at the end of the day, and at the end of the segment, he shot an innocent girl in the head. For uh, for likes and retweets and uh, yeah, it did it, it did feel different. It did feel different here. I don't know if it was just a dismiss dismissal of '90s comics because I feel like that's kind of his role is to be pointed at and laughed at. But uh, yeah, it was a 
It was callous, it was cold, it was weird And it's one of those things that You know me, I always worry about the toys getting broken It's uh, it's one of those situations where How do you walk this one back? You know, he did what he did And he did what he did for an audience I mean, I guess you could hand wave it all away If he shows up at the boneyard And Wind Dancer runs up and throws her arms around him And says, thank you so much for getting me out of Mojo World And and he shrugs it off, who knows uh, Maybe he Drinks a Mountain Dew and slams a, slams a pog on the table. I don't know. Now, Andrew wraps up with, The info page was a chilling and disturbing account of abuse. All the more disturbing is the subject line, quote, Why didn't you just leave? Which tells me it's a preemptive answer to the inevitable question that is always asked to the survivors of an abusive relationship. On one hand, I'm intrigued with where this story will go and the mystery of who sent it. On the other hand, if they're going to tell a story about such a traumatic subject... I just really hope it's handled with care that these things often aren't. Well, here, here. Um, you know, I I don't even know that I read that info page. I may not have, because I'm really drawing a blank on it. But uh, I'm going to have to dig out the book again to double-check here. But, yeah, this is a, if this is heading in that direction, because, I mean, just reading what you wrote here, there are parallels to that, because that is the question you get. You know, I did um, my undergrad in psychology, and a big part of that was trauma-informed care. And um, as such, I uh, sat in on a lot of support groups. And support groups are—they're—I uh, they, mean, they—they they work for people. They don't work for some other people. We're all different. So sometimes a support group is exactly what you need. Sometimes it's. Not what you need, and sometimes it's kind of a, a form of like the, the hair of the dog that bit you, you know. A lot of times I would hear people talk about their relationships. Sometimes it was an abusive spouse, sometimes it was a uh, chemically dependent spouse, and there would always be someone who would ask why you didn't just leave. Why, why are you still there? Why do you still put up with this? And the answers you'd get, the answers you'd hear from um, the person who was explaining the situation, they, they'd vary, but they would be similar in theme. And uh, a lot of it has to do with you know, things like codependency, things like fear, things like uh, keeping up appearances. There's all different reasons for that kind of thing. So if what we're going to have here is, is a story that veers into that territory... That um, that could be a toughie, and uh, that will have a, there, a lot of that will have to do with the subtlety and the sensitivity that uh, Williams takes with such a subject. And I don't know Williams, I don't know Leo Williams, so I don't know her life experiences. But uh, I, if we are going down this route, I do hope that it is uh, treated with uh, with with care, as as Andrew put it here. I guess uh, that'll be one of those things we wait and see. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on X Factor, and also for facilitating this next little segment, which will have us taking a look at the most recent sales charts here. Which mm, it's October 2020, which is like what six months ago. That's so strange. Uh, these are the most recent charts uh, available at Comicron.com. And uh, Comicron.com was where where me and Reggie would always get our sales information here. And uh, it's been a long time since I've been on this site. 
And it's weird. It's changed quite a bit here. It's changed in that, um, I mean, DC changed distributors, so it's going to be a little bit dicey to get everything where it needs to be, or you're cross-referencing a couple of sales charts. We don't know how accurate either one of them are. And here, it's strange. We're not getting a, like, a whole number anymore. Like, it used to be, like, you know, X-Men number one sold... 100,057 copies. It would be down to the actual number. Now we get a range. And I don't know why we get a range. I have a few sneaking suspicions as to why we get a range. Uh, Some are more conspiratorial than others. Uh, I mean, on one hand, it could just be a matter of the cross-referencing here. You know, they might not have accurate numbers for both sets of uh, sales. And they need to kind of ballpark it as best as possible to keep all things equal, right? Or as equal as possible. Another thing is, um, and I mean, this was something that came up over the years, is that there are some books that uh, Marvel and DC want to keep publishing, despite the fact that they drop into dangerously low numbers. You know, um, we, we don't get sales numbers on these charts. We get shipped numbers. So the numbers that we get are the a number of copies that get shipped to stores. Whether or not those actually make their way to customers' hands and into, into you know, private long boxes, that's a whole other thing altogether. And, uh, you know, you'd see books get canceled. You'd see books like, oh, you'd find out that... And we don't know what the, what the Mendoza line for uh, comics cancellation is in current year. We hear stories from, like, the old-timers, you know, the uh, John Burns and Jim Shooters who say, like, if it dipped under 100,000 copies, it would get canceled, which, I mean, it was different times, of course. But here, I remember, like, not so much the confirmed line, but the one that everyone seemed to notice when books started getting canceled was sub-20,000. So anything that sells under 20,000 copies would get canceled. And so when books would dip under, people would prepare for cancellation. But there were some books that Marvel and DC really, really wanted to put out. And uh, they would dip into the into the four figures. They would dip under 10,000 and they'd still get published or they'd get canceled and rebooted with a new number one immediately. And I wonder if this range might have something to do with not giving us all the information that we need here to maybe make it a little bit more ambiguous. But that is very conspiratorially minded, and uh, I mean, I I really don't care one way or another. (laughs) I'm reading the X books, and that's really all I care about at the moment. So, as I said, with all that out of the way, October 2020 are the most recent. So what we're going to do is take a look at September 2020, then October 2020. So maybe we can see if there's any trends in the market, because September was right before Exitens. October is right into Exitens. So maybe we can track this a little bit here. And over time, if we keep this little segment up, we, we should get some usable data. And like I said before, it's been years since I've tracked sales, um, which I guess probably makes me a very lax, fake-ass comics historian. But uh, we're going to write that wrong right now. We're going to start with September. The fourth highest-selling book was X of Swords Creation Number 1. Now, this sold somewhere between 115,000 and 140,000 copies, which, that's a pretty big range. (laughs) Um, uh, Those are shipped numbers, I should. I'm going to say sales, but it's anytime I say sales or sold, I mean shipped. So the fourth book of of this month is Exoswords Creation. 
Go down to number 13, and it's X-Men number 12, which shipped between 75,000 and 90,000 copies. The 19th best-selling book was Juggernaut number 1. What? Okay. Now, this one shipped between 67,500 and 80,000 copies. The 25th best-selling book was Wolverine number 5. It shipped between 60,000 and 72,000 copies. 27 was Giant Size X-Men Storm number 1. That one shipped 55,500 copies to 66,000 copies. X-Factor number 4. Now, there were two X-Factor books for the month of September. X-Factor number 4 was the 28th best-selling book with 50,000 to 60,000 copies. Now, this was the second issue of X-Factor this month, and this one is an X of Swords chapter, which is likely why it sold twice as many copies as the previous issue, which is way down the list, but we will get there before long. The 50th best-selling book was Giant Size X-Men Cockrum Tribute. Now, this one sold between 33,000 and 39,000 copies. The 51st best-selling book, well, Hellions number 4. Between same as same as Giant Size X Men here, between thirty three thousand and thirty nine thousand copies. The fifty seventh best selling book was X Force number twelve. Now this shipped between twenty twenty nine thousand five hundred and thirty five thousand copies. X Caliber number twelve was the fifty eighth highest selling book and it had the same ship numbers as X Force. Sixty eighth best selling book was Marauders number twelve. Now, this one shipped between 27,000 and 32,000 copies. And it's with this one that I'm reminded what a bubble we're kind of in on this show. Because um, Marauders number 12, an important issue. This was the return of Call Me Kate, which, you know, I'm of two minds on this here. Because I love it when they do big things in a regular issue of a comic. You know, we didn't need the Kitty Pride one-shot. We didn't need Giant Size X-Men, Captain Call Me Kate. We got new. We got Marauders number 12, where she comes back. But I can now see the wisdom in actually having a one-shot. Because, I mean, look at the, look at the one-shot we have with Giant Size Storm here. It's old... Twice as many copies as Marauders. And in Mar- and in Giant Size Storm, nothing happened. But in Marauders, we paid off a like a six-issue-long uh, dangling thread here with whether or not uh, Kitty could come back. And nobody read it. <laughs> I mean, it's so weird because like when we talked about that issue on the show, it was just like, okay, this is a big issue. Well, the mainstream comics fan did not give a crap. As is evidenced by how many copies of this book shipped Uh, Let's keep going The 72nd, 72 best-selling book was New Mutants number 12 This is the big docs issue And this one shipped between 26,500 and 31,000 copies Keep going down the list here The 79th best-selling book was X-Factor number 3 Which, like I said, sold like half as many copies as X-Factor number 4 23,000 to 28,000 copies Then, rounding us out As Andrew told us here With the 84th best-selling book of the month Cable number 4 It shipped between 22,500 and 27,000 copies So, 
Those are our baseline numbers here. And uh, they're not great. <laughs> um, none of them are under that, you know, 20,000 mark, thankfully. So, uh, I mean, cable, cable's on the precipice. And X-Factor without the uh, X-Attends bump is also down there between twenty-three and 28,000. I start to worry about anything that's under 30 Because I feel like that's when we're going to start wrapping things up Or winding things down But um, I guess we'll wait and see Let's wrap up with October Let's take a look at October here And the best-selling X-Men book Was the 10th best-selling book of the month And it was X-Men number 13 And this one shipped between 90,000 and 100,000 copies Which is a decent-sized gain Uh, Almost definitely do to the X of Ten's event, and that's something I'm going to be saying a lot, which is further evidence that we uh, we kind of lost the fight on uh, how we we always complain about events and how we have event fatigue. Well, we uh, we vote with our wallets, don't we? Uh, the eleventh best-selling book of the month is Wolverine number six. Now, this one shipped between eighty-five thousand and ninety-five thousand copies. So. Up from 60 to 72 to 85 to 95. So another really, really good gain. Of course, all about the X Attends event. Um, the 19th best-selling book of October was X of Swords Stasis Number 1. Now this one shipped between 61,500 and 68,000 copies. And I guess we can call this a drop if we're comparing this to X of Swords Creation. Which, you know, that's a drop of between 50 and 65%. Now, that sounds like a huge and steep fall, but it's sadly normal for a drop between a first and second issue. And this, my friends, is why the industry is still so gaga over number ones. Um, We vote with our wallets. Um, Now, the 24th best-selling book is X-Force number 13. This one shipped between 48,000 and 53,000 copies, a sizable leap indeed, which is proof positive why the industry is still so gaga over bloated events. We're losing that fight, guys. Uh, the 27th best-selling book is Marauders number 13. This one shipped between 46,000 and 51,000 copies, which, I mean, enough said, right? Uh, the 28th Best-selling book, New Mutants 13, shipped between 45000 and 50000 another nice bump. 34th best-selling book, Excalibur 13, this one shipped between 42000 and 47000 which nearly doubles <laughs> the sales of its previous month counterpart. So yeah, event comics work. Uh, the 35th best-selling book, Hellions number 5. This one shipped between 41,500 and 46,000 copies. Another near doubling in sales. The X of Tens effect in full effect. Uh, the 57th best selling book is Cable Number 5. This one shipped between 32,500 and 36,000 copies, which it's an increase, but compared to the rest of these books, a downright pitiful one. I mean, it got a bump, but nothing nothing like the other books here. So that is kind of troubling, isn't it? Uh, the 75th best-selling book was Juggernaut Number 2. That's totally expected. Uh, this one shipped between 27,000 and 30,000 copies, which is a huge, but like I said, a completely expected drop. This is the second issue of a C-list characters miniseries. Uh, though... 
I mean, you might think that the immortal Hulk appearance might have helped zhuzh the numbers a bit, but it didn't. It didn't at all. Now, rounding out our X-Book look is the 82nd best-selling book of the month, which was X of Swords Handbook, which I promise we're eventually going to get to. Uh, Now, this one shipped between 24,000 and 26,000 copies, so... It's a handbook. It's overpriced. You don't get story in it. I think that's a good number for a book like that. That's not bad at all. So those are our sales numbers here. So, uh, I mean, what are our takeaways here? If I haven't mentioned them enough, (laughs) Um, event comics work. So that's why we keep getting them. And number ones work, which is why we keep getting them as well. So... We lost this fight, but uh, we will continue following and tracking our sales numbers as they become available here. I'm waiting for the November numbers to come available at Comicron. I'll be checking it with regularity, and as soon as I know, we'll we'll discuss them here on the show. Um, I'd like to know if you guys like this idea for a segment here, just to uh, keep uh, keep us apprised of everything that's going on here. So when when we find out that cable isn't long for the world, we're not uh, we're not taken by surprise. I mean, who knows? Fingers crossed that's not the case, but uh, we'll see what we see when we see it. But that'll do it for today. I'd love to hear your feedback here. If you'd uh, like to get a hold of me or connect with me, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. I haven't blocked you, I promise. And uh, you can give me a follow there as well, and we can chat about all the things. You can also shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. I'm in the middle of starting a uh, little side project for the blog here. I'm getting nostalgic for blogging. It's been a long time since I've actually done like a, like a Chris-style blog post, so I'm feeling a little homesick. So we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of uh, extra credit, uh, and I'll, I'll announce that when it's uh, closer to being ready, which... Shouldn't be very long. It's not all that involved. So uh, keep an eye on chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's, you may see something there that uh, well, it probably won't surprise you, but you might might find it interesting. Who knows? Maybe you won't. I don't know. But uh, if you want to chat us up on Facebook, you can join our ever-increasing group here, uh, 90s X-Men. We're getting new members with a little bit of regularity now. So thank you all so much for joining in the conversation. And I'm trying to be better about uh, being interesting there. Or being interesting in general. Oh boy, if you'd like to listen to anything on the Chris and Reggie Radio Network channel thing, you could find us at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can even follow us on Podbean, I think. Um, you could find us on all your noise aggregation systems and applications. So, uh, well, you're listening now, so you probably already know that. But there are people who don't know that. So if you know anybody who might want to listen to this kind of blibble blabber, Please, spread the word. Do me that favor. Spread the word, share the show, and all that good stuff. But that is where I will stop talking for now. (laughs) I didn't think this one was going to go quite as long as it did, but it did. And I want to thank you all so much for spending this extended period of time with me today. It really, really means a lot to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya. See ya.